0: Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad alayhi wa sallam. Haudu billahi min al-shaytan ar-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa al salat al-dhikri. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an al-Kareem, Wa akimu salat al-dhikri and establish the salah for my dhikr, for my remembrance. So it means that the essential maksad of this ibadah is to engage in the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to be in the state from the takbirah tahrima up to the salam. That a person is so lost in the remembrance of Allah subhanahu that they're unable to remember or think of anything else. In this month of Ramadan, this is a month of rahmah, a month of maghfirah, a month of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's barakat. And we find that the majority of us in this month of Ramadan are increasing in the quantity of our ibadat. That is only through His grace and fuzzle and karam that same Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is enabling us to increase in the quantity of ibadat, if we turn to him, that same Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would happily increase us in the quality of our ibadah. And it is something that both of, we should want, both of these things, and we should want istiqamat on both, the quantity and the quality of our ibadat. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and the word he's used in the Qur'an the kareem for the of prayer, wa salah, to do iqamah of the salah, iqamah is something that is deeply established in a person. You can view it in one way that is deeply established in their life, that there's not a single day of their life except that it is peppered, it is permeated, it is rooted in those five prayers. But it also means that the Salah, the Sifat of the Salah, the Barakah of the Salah, the Zikr of that Salah becomes deeply embedded in that person's heart, in the person's life. Such that person lives this whole life as if they are amongst the Mustaddiyin. They're not amongst the Mustaddiyin just five times a day for five minutes. But that mode, the effect that comes on them, Right means that twenty four hours a day they are like the Musaleen. This is why Allah wa ta'ala said in the Quran Karim inna tanha anil wal Munkar, that verily really the salah, if it becomes a part of you, there's no chance that you're going to be doing Fashan Munkar in the masjid. So this power of salah is obviously something that's going to take place Khadij on anis salah outside or after the salah. And that's going to be that salah which is done with the proper sifat of dhikr, the proper inward attribute. You will find it's such a difficult thing to do and it, if people find it so difficult, what happened that you, shaitan has made this look like some massive mountain that we'll never be able to scale. That's why some people even leave praying because of this reason. They will come to you and tell you openly that the reason I don't pray, not that I don't know how to pray, not even that I don't know the Darjumah. They might even know the Darjumah. It's just not about the Darjumah. They will say, I don't pray because I don't feel anything when I pray. Right? There are obviously many, many problems in that approach. First of all, the reason of praying was not to reach a spiritual high. (laughs) The ultimate reason of praying was obedience, was worship, ita'at and ibadah, right? Submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So a person, that's not a very ubudhiya way of looking at prayer. That's not a slave or servant talking like that. Can you see a slave or servant who goes and says to their master that I do not serve you because I don't get pleasure from serving you? Or I do not serve you because I do not get happiness from serving you? No, he knows that his very nature as a slave and servant his raison that his reason of being is to serve, is to obey, is to do ibadah. So a mu'min, a Muslim should not be thinking like that, that that's not a condition, that's not a shart for me to pray. So I wanted to make that clear in the outset, lest anybody think that what we're about to do today is somehow a prerequisite for praying. It's not. There's only one prerequisite for salah and that is iman. Once you have iman in your heart and that is it, the shart is fulfilled and now you have to pray. But it should be our desire, our motivation to bring that Salah that is the manshan, the murad of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is a Salah that is prayed with a person's heart. That is a Salah that is prayed mindfully, fearfully, lovingly, devotedly. In which then that again, that prayer transforms our entire life. So what we're going to be talking about today, we ideally wanted to split this over two days. But it's very difficult to get uh, people apparently and a room on Sunday. So I may not be able to do everything. Uh, I would do today, but we will announce, uh, maybe a second date. And I'll also stop a little bit early and take some of your questions because many of you may have your own concerns or questions about prayer that I may not be able to anticipate or cover in this presentation. The first thing is that there's two aspects to what we call, uh, their words Allah spawned used in the Quran, came khashi'een. So this Arabic word khushu, that a person should have khushu in their salah. Means a person should have humility, reverence, fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, concentration and devotedness in their prayer. And there are different ways that we can have this khushu. One is for our kalb, our spiritual heart to have khushu. The other is for our body to be in a state of khushu. And both of these things feed off one another. For many people, right in the earlier times, their heart would have khushu and that would overcome their body. For most of us, we're going to have to work this process backward. And we're going to try to bring the zahiri khushu into our bodily movements, our bodily postures, our external feeling and our external surat, hoping that perhaps Allah subhanahu will breathe that spirit, that ruh, that inner aspect of prayer inside into our heart. I'm going to first begin with something that Imam Al-Hazad has mentioned, that he is in his famous book, Ihya'ul-Muddin, has divided this khushu into six parts. So we're going to discuss these six parts and how to get them. Then after that, I'm going to mention other things that other ulama and mashayikh have mentioned that will enable a person to attain the sifat of khushu or the sifat of consciousness and feeling in their prayer. And then after that, I will stop and open it up for questions. So in his book, Ihya'ul-Muddin, The Revival of the Religious Sciences, Imam al-Ghazali says that number one, the first internal state that a person should have is what he mentions as al qalb which means awareness or presence of heart and mind. In the first instance, this means that a person is aware of what it is that they're doing. We're not even talking about aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yet. The first level is simply to be aware of what you're doing. Because you, when you look about, what we're going to do is if you see this word in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, ذِكْر wa dhikr Right? The contrast to this, the opposite word to this is ghafla to be heedless. And really, sometimes what we need to do is you need to diagnose the illness properly. It's only when you diagnose the level, strength, the depth of an illness can you really start thinking about its cure. So what we should be doing step by step as we try to look at all the things that will increase this, we should also look to, at the magnitude to which we've already fallen into this. right? And so the first level of awareness is simply being aware of what it is that you're doing. Awareness of your activity. And if you look at that, right there, we're gone. (laughs) Right there, many times when we pray, we're in a state of ghaflah. We're unaware of what we're doing. And that's why people will then have all these issues and ask all these questions. That You know, I was praying... I forgot what rakat I was in, I forgot what I was saying, I don't even know, did I say fatah, did I say a surah, I'm in ruku, did I already do ruku, I did a sajda, I don't know, is it my first sajda, is it my second sajda, I know I'm in my second sajda, I don't know, am I supposed to stand up, <laughs> it's crazy, the books of fatah are like volumes, when you open up the section on salah. literally, I have my own I have seen hundreds and hundreds of pages on these type of questions, right?, all types of, and a lot of these questions never came up in the time of the Prophet, ﷺ. so the fuqah have to go and dive deep and come up with usul to answer these questions. Without the fuqaha, you'd never be able to figure out your salah. Unless you are some kamil sahaba who never has these issues, otherwise, many of the masal that me and you have, you'd never find that answer in the Quran and Sunnah. Because nobody in the first generation ever had such mistakes. You will never find a single hadith when any sahaba went to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Ya the other day I was praying to Nafil, and in my second rakat I forgot whether I had recited Fatih or not. You will not find a single Hadith like that. Or, Ya Rasulullah, I was praying uh, Salah, uh, and uh, I didn't re- I didn't remember if I was in the third or fourth rakat, whether I should sit or stand or say Salam, or what should I do. Right? So the first level that Imam Ghazali talks about awareness of simply what you're doing. So what does that mean? What extent of ghafat is that? There are very few things in life that mean you do that we're unaware. I cannot speak to you unaware, I'm aware I'm speaking to you, there are people here We're in a room, when you're studying, you're aware, you're in econ class, computer science class, imagine doing something, try, if you want, to see the magnitude of this, try to do something other than ibadat in your life with this level of ghaflat, that you're unaware of even what it is that you're doing. <laughs> you're unaware of even what you said. Can you imagine speaking to somebody, maybe going for an interview, and telling that person talking and being uh did did I tell you where I went to school or or did we not do that? Or I can't really remember, did I tell you about my last job and I can't even remember what I just told you in the last two minutes. It's a a mockery. The person interviewing you would fire you like this. It's nonsensical. We cannot imagine ever even interacting with anybody like that. So if you think about it, there's no single action in our life that we do with as much ghaflat as we pray (laughs) Salah. We're in an extreme situation here. An extreme situation. So rather than fight with one another over the zahir of prayer, why not we be people of reflection and people of thinking and people of feeling and try to work on the batan of our prayer when that is so lacking? Right? So the first thing Imam Ghazali says is simply to be aware of the action that you're doing. I'm going to come to this. He's going to bring a little bit here in terms of words and meanings, but that's going to be separate. Okay? other than being aware of the words, the alfaz, or the meanings of ma'ani, just to be aware of what it is that you're doing. Right? And another way you can see if your mind starts wandering, planning your day, reminiscing about this, regretting that, thinking this, planning what you're going to eat or do, means you're totally not even aware that you're standing. Right? Second, obviously, we will put this over here. Second is the awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So the awareness of what you're doing and the awareness of who exactly you are addressing. This is the ultimate. So if you're not aware of even what you're doing, how are you going to be aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Right? So, And this is what we need. So I'm going to keep bringing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I'll try to bring it in every step. If we don't have awareness of what we're doing, there's no way we can have awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How can a person fix this? How can a person fix this? He mentioned several things. Number one is that he uses this word tafakkur. That simply means that a person literally just mentally has to work on themselves and mentally force themselves to be aware. It's just a mental exercise. And you do that all these, all, all over in many places in your life. When you lack concentration, you lack focus, you don't go to somebody and say, you know, I can't concentrate on my studies. Give me some special recipe. Wave some magic wand over me. It's very simple. The person will just say, well, sit down and focus. You have to sit down and concentrate. Pause for a bit. Focus your thoughts. Clear your mind of everything else. Realize what it is that you're doing. So Imam Zai says all these similar same things. That just do tafakkur. Use your brain. Focus mentally on what it is that you're doing. Make yourself aware. The second thing he says is that you should remember the akhirah more. And what happens is because when you're in the Salah, that is something that you're doing for your akhirah, As opposed to the ghaflat that we have, the random thoughts that we have, those are normally pertaining to our dunya. So he says the more and more you can think of the Akhirah generally in your life or immediately right before you pray, right? that remind yourself of the Akhirah, of the hereafter, of the afterlife, the presenting of ourselves and our deeds and our souls and our emotions and everything in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in a sense engage in some type of Dhikr. dhikr akhirah Dhikr-e-Maut, Dhikr of Allah to put yourself in that frame. So that's how he says you get about that tafakkur. If you do that, then you will then view salat as something that leads to your akhirah. You will be conscious of this action. You will realize that what I've just stepped up to do, right? Even a batter, when he steps up to the plate, knows what it is that he's about to do. He steps up to the plate to play a sport, to hit a ball with a wooden bat, with more awareness and attention than mean you step up on the musalla. Right? So simply just think what it is that I'm going to do, who it is that I'm doing for. This process could take maybe 10 seconds. Literally, 10 to 15 seconds of tafakkur and zikr before a person starts to pray. Wouldn't take more than that, right? Alhamdulillah, if a person has iman in their heart, the nur of iman is so strong, it just needs a little trigger. Iman is not something that's weak, that needs a lot of pumping up to be ignited. It just needs a little, little trigger and it burns. You will find, inshallah ta'ala, if we try this, if we even spend 10 seconds in tafakkur, we will immediately become aware that this is what I am about to do. The second thing he mentions is understanding. Understanding. Uh, sorry. Understanding. And there are two things that he mentions here. Understanding the words, and understanding or being aware of the words and being aware of the meanings of the words. Obviously, meaning of the words is not going to be able for somebody who has not studied the meanings. I'm not saying knows Arabic. You do not need to know the Arabic language to know the meanings of Salat. You just need to spend, really, just a few moments or maybe at most, maybe a few hours of your life to study the meanings of Fatiha and at and the Tasbihat. And the reality is, is that, mean, you know already many things, but we're just unaware of them. We all know what SubhanA Rabbi Al-Azim means. We all know what SubhanA Rabbi al means. We know what Bismillah ar rahim if nothing else. All of us know what Alhamdulillah means, etc. 99% of us probably know what Fatiha means. So understanding, and each thing he links back. So understanding number one, right, is of the meaning. A second thing that he mentions is the words. Perhaps in anticipation, because he was a person who lived in Persia, of people who might not know the Arabic language, or who might be praying behind an imam, who is reciting long surahs, the meanings of which they do not know. So he says, at least focus on the alfaz. And those of you who are praying tarawih prayers this month in Ramadan will see that, that, if you listen carefully, if you listen intently, you won't be able to figure out unless you know the meanings of the Qur'an. But you might hear the word Allah, you will hear the word Rahmah, you will hear the word Jannat. In fact, if you listen intently, I can pretty much guarantee there will not be a single minute that will pass over you that you will not hear some word that you understand. And that word being the Kalam of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, being part of the Qur'an of is sufficient to ignite your heart if you tune into it. Just hearing the word Allah should be enough. Allah S W T mentions as an attribute of the believers, Wajilat That if Allah is mentioned in front of them, if Allah's name or anything about Allah wa ta'ala is mentioned in front of them, Wajilat their hearts tremble, their hearts tremble, they quiver, right? And so you have to zone into the alfaz. And those who are praying taraweeh prayers in jamaat, it's it's a great. If you're praying in a place which has a proper sound system and you can really discern. The words clearly and distinctly then you should really tune into those words and think ya Allah I don't understand the whole Quran agreement but there are enough words you right so you should zone into the words the alfaz and the maani and the maani both and that's because there's a rupt in them so when you're praying alone if you find yourself lapsing and you realize oh I just said all these things without Without even being aware. Even the things that I know, I understand. So focus back on the words. When you focus on the zahir, this is an incredible rut in our deen between the zahir and batin. That's why Allah taala himself has chosen these two asma for himself. He is al-zahir and he is al-batin. So in his kalam, the zahir of the al-faz and the batin of the ma'ani, the ma'arif. If you focus on those words, if you literally focus on the letters, alhamdu, if you focus home in on that, you'll inshallah automatically remember that that it means that praise itself or all praises befit only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You just have to focus on the haruf, even. That's what Ghazali say. So, And the, how difficult is that to do? If I told you in English, say something, speak unthinkingly, but just focus, at least you know the letters that you're pronouncing and you focus on the words that you're uttering. That's so easy. <laughs> That's second nature to us. In fact, we can never think of speaking in any other way other than we know the words and meanings of what we're saying. So focus on both the al-faz and the ma'ani. And if a person has not yet been able to learn or understand or memorize however you want to put it, the meanings, then they should do so. And this month of Ramadan is a perfect month to do that. The third thing he mentions is reverence. And what he says is that a person may stand before Allah in a state of awareness of what they're doing and understanding the words and meanings that they're saying. But they still might not have that reverence Okay Heba This reverence This uh, You know It's a feeling that Allah Ta'ala's azmat And jalal is in a person's heart To speak to somebody To address a being Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala reverently Right And again There will be some effect On your zahir on this Right Your eyes are lowered In salah I will come to that In a little bit The sunnah places In which you're supposed to Direct your eyes But your eyes will be lowered In salah So reverence is something additional How does a person get this reverence? This is done by, again, 10-15 seconds before prayer or even during the prayer, right? To remind yourself that I'm standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and try to learn also your ilm. When you read the hadith about salah, that it's a conversation that Allah ta'ala is listening to the musalli, is watching the musalli, is gazing at the musalli, the more and more this becomes part of your aim, the more and more this becomes part of your outlook, then the more and more reverence you're going to have every time you step up that way. Right? The batman looks reverently at the pitcher, or what do you call it here? Bowler. Right? Who's throwing the ball? He's focused on him. He is more focused on the pitcher and the ball than we are focused on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we have to have reverence. Reverence for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he mentions another thing, awe. And he says, as for awe, it is over and above reverence. It is a type of fear that goes out of the ladder. Okay? Asura, actually, this is, in the Arabic, this was habit, hey, this is azmat. The azmat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should be dominant on us due to His majesty, His greatness. The next thing that comes is this fear. And again, as I've explained to several of you on other occasions, this fear is not a terror. That we are terrified of Allah subhanahu ta'ala. That is not, that, and Imam al says, not the fear that you feel of a scorpion or a snake. Because Allah subhanahu is not a harmful being. He's not an evil or a cruel being. It's a fear born out of that azmat. It's a fear born out of this reverence. Right? It's a awe. Just like if you're, some people are awe inspired by human beings. Some people are in awe. So if you're in awe of a human being due to whatever his ilm or his taqwa or whatever it is, imagine how much awe we should be in of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself should be absolutely blown away when you step up on the musalla right completely humbled by awe and really you can link this concept of humility over here right and when i inshallah also go through fatah will you i will show you how fatah is going to try to create all of these different states the fifth thing is hope or raja that despite the azmat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, despite the awe that you're feeling, the humility that you're feeling before His might and majesty, you should have hope. Hope that He is listening to you, hope of His mercy, hope that this act of ubudiyah, of fulfilling His command and His wishes, will truly gain His Raza. And a person gets content that way and a person is more happily and more devotedly going to pray when they know that they're praying to their Lord and their Lord is pleased with them. And they're earning their pleasure. So you should have husnizan, you should think positively that this salah is a means for me to attain the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As the Prophet said, mumin That the salah is the a spiritual ascent of the believer. Right? And what is that miraj? It's in essence that miraj that they get this highest maqam. What is the highest maqam Allah said in the Quran min Akbar? That the pleasure of Allah is Akbar, that's the greatest thing. That Allah Ta'ala could be pleased with us. So a person should think that way. That I have mercy, I have hope in Allah ta'ala's mercy that He is going to be pleased with me. And the last thing, the sixth thing that He mentions is shame. In other words, you can basically see how these are the things that are going to go sequentially in your prayer. After the reverence and awe, you should have hope, right? This reverence and awe is not meant to make you dejected and make you hopeless, right? Allah ta'ala is not that type of being. That's why He says in the Quran, لا من رحمة الله فإنه Never despair of the mercy of Allah. If you look at His azma, do not despair. If you look at our ihtiyaj, our need of Allah, our Lordness, Do not despair. Something that is greater than his azmat is his rahmat. And what is greater than our weakness and our deficiencies is also his rahmat. So when we move from looking at his azmat, which is haq, and looking at our need, which is haq, then we move to looking at his rahmat, which is even more haq. And therefore we fall into hope. And then after when we look at that incredible rahmat, then we fall into shame. That Allah you're so merciful, and still I'm unable to reach you. You're so kind, so merciful, so loving, and still I'm unable to be focused. So towards the end of prayer, a sense of shame that perhaps we weren't able to focus enough. And the element of that shame has to be followed by, it's again not meant to lead us to pessimism. That shame is meant to be followed by a renewed vigor to do it even better the next time. Right? Those Your rahmat is so incredible, I may have fallen short now, but I'm not going to. I'm going to stick to this. I'm going to do even better. Every single prayer of mine should be better than the next one. That's what I want, right? And if this one wasn't better, then I feel ashamed about myself that I'm not able to get this in- improvement no matter how small or incremental it might be. So Imam Rahimallah, if you will, in, in modern speak, has given you a six-step program to improving our Salah. And really, it just takes a few prayers. Maximum three days probably. That a person can do this and this month of Ramadan again is the perfect and most best way to do so. Now there are some things in our life as well as in our ibadat and in our deen that if we fix them they are also going to be the things that enable us to feel more conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in our prayer. Number one is that we must abstain from sins. We must abstain from sin. Now what Allah ta'ala himself is saying Now imagine we've reversed the equation. Allah is saying that be so regular in your salah that it keeps you from fasha and munkar. Fasha means something that is vulgar, something that is crass. And munkar means that thing which has been prohibited, right? Which has been negated. And we're working at the other way around. It's our fasha and munkar that are doing tana and salah that are keeping us from prayer. So it means that the tartib of our life is completely reversed, it's completely opposite. So one way then it's critical to bringing back the nur or the ruh or the zikr or the batin of our salah is to leave sin. An example I can give this of you is that sin is like, imagine sin is like garbage, right? Now if you're standing in the middle of a garbage dump, you can take a whole bottle of itar and pour it on yourself, you will not become fragrant. But if you can extract yourself from that garbage dump, then you just need a few drops. And you will be mu'attar. You will be fragrant and that fragrance will last. And those few drops, if it's a quality, it will last. And there's no great it than the ibadah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what it lasts. That's why it a few minutes. is no problem. The Prophet Muhammad said that when you pray, you're washing your sins. And it's such a powerful bath that it takes out all the dirt. It's a big stain remover. It can take out hours. Minutes of ibadah can take away hours of sin and hours of ghaflah. But if we work it the other way around, that we are making our hours of sin and our hours of ghafla take away our minutes of ibadah. So the first thing is to abstain from sin and to make a niyat in that. There are many niyat, many intentions for leaving sin. This can be yet another additional niyat that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm sick and tired of praying in front of you like a munafik. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned in the Qur'an al one of the alamat, one of the uh, sifat of the munafikin. La yazkurun Allah إِلَّا قَلِيلًا That do not make zikr of Allah except a little. Not that they don't make zikr at all. They're kaleel zikr. They remember Allah but a little bit. That's the son of the munafiqeen. The son of the mu'mineen is allَذِينَ يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهَ قِيَامٌ وَقُؤُودٌ وَالْعَاضِ جُنُوبِهِمْ مَاذَاكِرِينَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرَ وَذَاكِرَةٌ That those who remember Allah abundantly. That is mu'min And those who remember Allah صلى that is ghafla, that is that is nifaq, right? So when it comes to dhikr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants it in abundance. So the first step then of things that we can do, this, and this is 12 things. So the next, the first one is to abstain from sin. The second thing, right, is to abstain from haram income. Unlawful means of earning. The most predominant of this is riba. Interest or insurance or other things that Allah has prohibited, right? Or unlawful ways of earning a lawful income. Lying, fraud, deception, corruption, bribery, right? Anything that we do that is obtained through unlawfulness becomes part of us, right? And and that means that our eating also becomes haram if we're eating from haram sources. And when one replied, the Prophet said that Allah has not accepted dua of a person for 40 years. There are different ra'ayat on this, right? Du'a's ahm might include salah. It means that it's going to be a barrier. It can numb your spirituality. Right? Just like you will find that if you do something, if you take something, a small little microbe that has some virus, you will be out, you will have food poisoning. Your all your whole physical system is decapacitated. Because you took a small virus that you could only see under a microscope. Now imagine if you take morsels and morsels of haram. Right? What is that going to do that's going to totally decapacitate your spiritual system? And that's going to make us unable to become people who feel, who have dhikr in our salah. So to stay away from any and all haram ways of earning unlawful income, unlawful eating. The third thing is wudu. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has actually himself in the deen, created things surrounding the salah so that they increase our dhikr in salah. So if you want to be remembered in your salah, we'll have dhikr when you do your wudu. If you're aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in wudu, then immediately you will be aware in your salah. So what do we do then when we find this notion of being unaware? We're completely unaware in our wudu also. We're unaware of what we're doing. We're just splashing water in ourselves, right? That's it. And it becomes just splashing water. It's much, much more than splashing water, right? Uh, and, um, and even the whole fiqh of wudu teaches us that it's not as if you have to splash water here because there's some najasa on your arm. Nothing happened here. Nothing. Absolutely, you just took a shower and you passed wind and you're completely sparkling clean. <laughs> but nonetheless, you're told to make wudu. So it means wudu isn't about the water touching the skin. That's the method. That's not the maqsad of wudu. There's a maqsad of wudu and that, that is this notion that again, this is tahara. Just like we had salah, which is namaz. Tahara has a zahir and a batin. Right? And inna Allah يحب المتطهرين. That Allah SWT loves the people of Tahara. This is a zahir activity meant to purify our inner self. And certain du'as and intentions that a person makes in wudu. That Allah, wants, I want that you should wipe away all the sins I did with my hands, the sins I did with my eyes, the sinful thoughts I thought with my brain, the sinful places that my feet took me to, all my actions. Right? That a person is saying, I'm purifying myself for prayer. I'm not cleaning my arm. I'm purifying my heart for prayer. That is the niyat and wudu. Right? So if, you do, if, we can, if we're able to do wudu consciously, then that will increase our level. There are different levels of tahara that have been mentioned. The first level of tahara, purity, is obviously outward purity. Purity from any type of physical filth. The second level of tahara is purity of our five senses and our organs. That our eyes are pure, which means they're tahir and adhan, they're pure from sin. That our ears are pure from sin, that our tongues are pure from sin. The purity of the tongue lies in nobility of speech and abstaining from lying and blackbiting and slander. The purity of the eyes lies in looking at things such as the Kaaba, the Quran, al Kareem, right? One and your fellow Muslims with love, etc. And all of you know the sins of the eyes. The purity of the ears lies in listening to good things, nasiha. And the sins of the ears lies in listening to blackbiting slander, false ideologies, hypocrisies, things that erode and corrupt and put doubts in your iman. Right? So the purity of our organs. The third level is purity of our mind from corrupt thoughts. This is an incredible thing that afflicts us in our salah, that our minds are impure. We can make our bodies pure, our clothing pure, the janama pure, the place that we... Everything is pure. But the mind that we bring to prayer is impure. <laughs> All, Allahu Akbar, a person would be amazed, amazed. In the past three, four years, just at Lama's amount of things that people have told me that they think during their Salah is just amazing. It's mind-boggling to me of what people are able to come up with and think up in their mind during Salah. Allahu Akbar, Kabir. And that's a much more intense type of najasa. This type of najasa can be removed with water. A najasa on your body, on your clothing, on your musalla that can be removed easily. What to do if I've got najasa in my mind? Right? And the other thing is your kalb. Najasa in our kalb. What does that mean? False love. Love for ghairullah. Other than the love that he has allowed or that can be done in his name or in his sake such as family, etc. Teacher, student, brother, sister, etc. False love. majas. That is the najasa that's in our heart. That's an impurity that forget it. There's no way. There's no way we can do everything, we can forget, follow everything, but if we bring to that prayer a heart that loves Ghayrullah in a way that is impermissible, how in the world is that heart going to feel for the love for Allah Ta'ala Allah Ta'ala does not accept any shariq. What does that mean? He doesn't accept any shariq in theology, that you cannot ascribe any divinity to any being other than Him. But ultimately it means He doesn't accept any shariq in ubudiyah. That you can obey or make the means of your life, the purpose of your life, anybody other than him, iyaq and But it also means he doesn't want shariq in, in your heart. He demands that the mu'min should love for his sake, love him and love for his sake, and hate only for his sake. So when we love ghayrullah against the wishes of Allah, we've created a shariq. We're doing shirk in our cult. So Allah is not going to come to that place where we've set up a rival. Allah Ta'ala is not going to let like his zikr enter that heart in which there is a rival. That is what Allah wa says, وَلَا تُطِيْ أَغْفَلْنَا قَلْبُهُ أَنْ ذِكْرِنَا He says in the Qur'an that do not obey that person whose kalb, whose spiritual heart, أَغْفَلْنَا, we have made a ghafil, have made empty, an dhikrina from our remembrance. So it means the kalb must have zikr, the heart must have the remembrance of Allah. And that is the purity of the heart. The, the, and before this was the purity of the nafs. So we did purity of the akl, purity of the column in the middle I skipped was purity of the nafs. What is that purity of our nafs from bad attributes, from bad desires, from arrogance, from unlawful lust, from greed, from conceit, from vanity, from hasad, from envy, from jealousy. And the adornment with the akhlaqi hamida, with noble and good attributes. So all of these things, this whole, the whole deen basically is leading to this tahara, what we call taskiyah. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned that the Prophet came, they use him, to do taskiyah of humanity. And that without that taskiyah, our salah is not going to be pure. How can an impure person pray, pray a pure salah? How can an impure heart feel that most purest of being, subhanahu wa ta'ala? Subhan means Allah is, is, is pure, free from any and all deficiency, any and all even remote concept of impurity pure purity. How could the remembrance of that pure, pure being come into an impure heart? It's impossible. So all of this is linked to wudu. The barakah of this is Allah combined, collapsed all of this into one broad action of putting water. That a person should make the Allah subhanahu am doing my zahiri taharat. Allah, Allah put the taharat in my qalb put taharat in my akal, put taharat in my nafs. Give me the inner taharat so that with this inner taharat I want to come to you. I want this wudu not to be skin deep. I want this process of wudu to purify me outwardly and inwardly so that I'm able to remember you when I come to Salah. So three things so far. Number one is abstaining from sin. Number two is abstaining from haram, unlawful earnings and income and food that is consumed from such earnings. Number three was this notion of wudu and tahara and to do wudu in the state of dhikr. That is a massive preparation for Salah. You will already enter the zone. We don't have to talk about Salah. If you enter the zone in Wudu, you're definitely going to be in the zone when you're in Salah. Right? Number four is Adhan. The Adhan itself. And Alhamdulillah, and really, I mean, as someone who spent most of his life in America, you should really do Qadr of the Adhan living in a Muslim country. Right? To listen to it unfeelingly. That's, how? How could you to listen to something as noble as Allahu Akbar? Unfeelingly. Or unthinkingly, or again, go step one, without awareness. Imam Ghazali, really, he hit the nail, on the, right? This is the first step, right? So why is Adhan there? Why? Right? Now the modernists will say, you don't need Adhan, you've got your clocks and alarms. No, Adhan's there for a reason. This talk clock doesn't give you that message of Allahu Akbar. This timepiece does not feed your iman with an la ilaha illallah, right? This timepiece does not feed your iman with anna Muhammad Rasulullah wasallam. Right? That is what Adhan is doing. al is trying to pump you up. <laughs> He's trying to remind you. It's not that difficult to listen to Adhan attentively. And it's written by so many of the early pious Muslims, the Salaf of Salihin, the Mufasrin, Muhaddisin, Fukuhan, Awliya'i Kamilin, that they used to listen to Adhan. They used to stop. The Adhan used to say, the Ali Radaan, when Adhan used to happen, he used to tremble. The Allahu Akbar Adhan, that's it, he was in the zone. It's even before he goes to the masjid, does budhu, do anything. Just the first, just Allah, just the first word of the adhan has enough power to put you in the zone. I already said in the Qur'an al-Karim, إِذَا دُكِرَ That when Allah subhanahu is mentioned, their hearts tremble and quiver. How many times does the word Allah come in the adhan? Not just in Allah, it's coming in other places, right? The blessed name of Rasulullah, the reference to Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa Right, so the next thing is adhan to listen to the adhan attentively, and the sunnah of this is to respond. Right, and again, that response isn't meant to just be tongue deep. The Prophet and Tada said that that reciting that, repeating that, is meant to trigger the maani of the adhan to imbibe, to inscribe the maani of the adhan onto our heart. The tongue is just a triggering mechanism. You should never leave it tongue deep. None of the sunnah duas are just tongue deep. Right when, For example, the Prophet says, say, Alhamdulillah, after you eat, it's not just a recitation of the tongue. The purpose of that recitation with tongue is that your heart should well up in praise for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Every time you eat even the most simplest of foods. So to listen to the adhan attentively, to respond to it, to submit to its meanings, right? And to recite the sunnah dua after adhan, which is a dua for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So, number one is abstain from sin. Number two, abstain from unlawful, haram, income. Number three was wudu and tahara, to do wudu and tahara with a state of dhikr. Number four is to listen to and respond to that adhan in a state of zikr. Number five is to enter the environment of salah. This is a little bit, right, more for the men to enter the masjid, right, in a state of dhikr. There are du'as in entering the masjid. But again, the meaning of those du'as is what you should be feeling in your heart, not just a quick recitation while you walk in. Right, but that verily this is a place of Allah rahmah, his barakah, his fazl. Right, if it's a woman when she steps on her musalla, right, and women are actually told that if possible, the Prophet Wasallam said that the most preferred prayer of a woman, right, is in her home, in the innermost chamber of her home, in the innermost alcove of the innermost chamber of her home. And sometimes and there, there, there is record of this in early history that some Muslims used to ascribe a place which in the books is referred to as masjid al-bayt. It's not a masjid. Masjid al-bayt, or you can call it a musalla, a place in their home that was designated for prayer. And that can be extremely beneficial for women. Notwithstanding that men should also pray in Nawafil, in Sunnah, and other ibadat in their prayer because the Prophet ﷺ that do not make your homes graves, which means do not make them absent of ibadah. Right? So either way, if a person is entering the masjid or entering their area in their home for prayer, or even just putting their musalla somewhere and stepping onto that musalla, that musalla is something. Right? When you step in the Masala, you should think that you're being like science fiction, transported from the dimension of your lums dorm room into this new spiritual dimension of Salah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what you're doing. You view it as a transporter, that you're being beamed <laughs> to another level of existence. Right? So to be aware of that, and that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done that. This, why? Why is it so much better to go to the masjid? It's not just a salaab. It has a fazilat that is going to be, it's anfa, it's more beneficial. Because it represents in-kita. You're cutting yourself off from Ghirullah physically. So Allah. Wants, and if you look, mashallah and lums really, I mean for for those of you who have come from Lums, uh, the women's section, the Lums Masjid is a mercy for you. Right? It's difficult to pray in your dorm room. It's difficult for a girl to pray in her dorm room. Home is different. Absolutely prayer in your home or you control the environment. If in your dorm room, you know, the girls in your wing are praying music, maybe somebody's smoking, it is a difficult environment to pray in, right? So, if there is a masjid which has a segregated area for women, access to which and staying in which has been done in accordance with the dictates of the sharia, if a woman wants to come to the masjid, in this case, right, uh, I would think, this is my own (laughs) individual position, others may disagree, right, that it is uh, allowed and perhaps preferable for a woman to come to the masjid and pray. If she doesn't start to pray in the jamaat, She can pray on her own also, but pray in that environment because that environment is going to be more conducive to her achieving the maksad of prayer, which is dhikr. If, however, a woman is able, perhaps, to make her dorm room such an environment or to live in clusters such as your wing or your floor can be such an environment, then that would then be preferable, right? But either way, to have awareness or to create some environment somehow, to create some space for yourself, Right, Which can be an escape, which can represent an inqita, a separation from makhluk, a separation from ghairullah. Number six is a lost sunnah of the sahaba. A lost sunnah of the sahaba and that is intidharus salah. Intidharus salah, you have the same word, it's it, to wait for the salah. Literally it's from Nazar, they would wait attentively with a gaze, but it means they would wait attentively for the prayer. In, the, in, the, in Masjid and Abu, in Medina Manawbar, there was no chart up. There were no Jamal timings posted. <laughs> the Adhan would happen and the Saba would assemble. And at some point, the Prophet would come out from his hujah. It wasn't some exact thing. Ten minutes from the Adhan or five minutes from this Adhan. No. The Saba would come and they would wait silently, humbly, doing the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa Taala. This was like a warm-up for them. They would do some intidhar. And again, those of us who go to the Masjid should not feel bad ever about going early. What you find many times is if guys show up to the masjid and there's still some time left, they won't go on the door, they won't even set for on the steps, they'll keep looking in, they keep chatting. It's like it's some sin to go into the masjid early. <laughs> they will chat. If they can't find them to chat, they'll pick out their phone. They'll do anything but go into the masjid early. And you find this in Jummah also with people. People congregating outside because maybe the bayan is still going on or Jummah still hasn't started. Why? that? If you look at the adab of that, that's not really good adab, right? That doesn't show love for the masjid. The person, if he had to have love for the masjid, they would be so happy that they got there early. So happy that, okay, I've got some early times so and maybe I'll spend some time reading Quran or making zikr, or making istikbar, making du'a, warming up for my prayer. I love to be in the masjid. I got some extra moments of masjid. Oh, I guess my watch is off. I got there early. A person will be so upset, to reset their watch of the masjid clock so that they never come early. Right? People do that. Literally. I have not. These are literal things that people do. I'm not making this up. Right? So, intidharus salah. This can also. This is what I mentioned is coincidentally. If you happen to come early, you can also do it deliberately. That you can get there and sit for a minute and look at look. I need to prepare myself. Do that to fuck with the fucker the imams I talked about. I'm not ready yet, right? Let me prep myself a little bit for salah. Let me just spend again 10, 15 seconds just trying to clear my mind. Let me just wait a little bit and then you stand up and pray. So the sixth thing is this lesson of Intidar. The seventh. There are seven things I've done which is to focus on the words and the meaning. Right? I've already explained that what that means. They're separate things. One is to focus on the alfaz and the second is to focus on the ma'ani of the alfaz. The next thing is what in Arabic we call ta'adil al It means to give adl, to do justice to each and every posture, statement in the prayer. One way to do this and I would suggest this is just a suggestion in the month of Ramadan. Anybody can do it. It's not khas with this month in any way. But to increase the number of tasbihat that we say. What happens is we roll through the three SubhanAllah biLadims and roll through the three SubhanAllah Atlas. Let's try in this month or at some point to try to say it five times, or seven times, or nine times, or eleven times. It's a bit preferred. There's some slight preference mentioned for saying it an odd number of times, right? And you will see that we're not one reason. Perhaps we're not able to taste the sweetness of ruku. There are some seats back there. Uh, if maybe you some of the girls could move inward. And so the, the women are coming in from the aisles could come and sit in. There is a sweetness in every rukan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed a separate lutf in ruku, a separate lutf in sadza, a separate lutf in coma. Many people also, samilan al min hamidah, and then they go right down. You're supposed to stop your joints. The way it's described is literally your joints are supposed to rest, there should be a complete pause. A complete lack of motion. And sometimes we're going through these things so quickly that we don't taste the pleasure of qamah or of ruku or of sajda. So, one way to do this is to increase the tasbihat that we say. So, don't just say, Rabbana lakal hamd. Say, Allahumma rabbana wa hamd, hamdan kathiran, tayyiban, mubarakan fi. Extend it. Extend that feeling. Feel what it's like to stand before Allah with my hands on my sides and say something and just in His praise and glory. Extend the time you spend in ruku. Relax in ruku. Don't arrive there only to quickly depart. View it as a wonderful place that I've arrived. Say some more Subhanahu Watalim. Say it slower or more. Either way, right? Really think about the word subhanahu about, about al Azim. Try to feel that I'm manifesting that Allah by going and by bowing. And then when you're in Sajda, say more Subhanahu Allah. Think of Atla as you push yourself further down, right? As your eyes look down, you push yourself further down in your Sajda. Think more and more about this tasbihat Right? Prolong your prayer. If you add your, to your tasbihat, it's really not going to add to the length of your prayer by more than a couple of minutes. If you were able to pray four akats in five minutes, very fast, but if you're able to pray four akhats in five minutes, if you add to your tasbihat, it's going to add a extra minute at best. You'll be praying in six minutes. right? But you will feel sajda. You will feel that I did sajda. You will feel that I did something called ruku. Right? Now we're doing it so quickly, we don't even feel that we did it right so ta'dil-e-arkan to try to give and what the justice is basically whatever enables you to feel something that is what is just neither ifrat or tafrit neither extreme not to prolong it so long either adal it's a perfect word that has been used for this do it do that portion or posture or position or statement of your salah it's just do and it's just do it's right over us is that we should do it thinkingly and feelingly right the next thing that the Prophet mentioned in the hadith and sometimes you will hear people say this or announce this before they lead a prayer is that pray this Salah as if it is your last prayer. The Prophet has actually said this, that pray this Salah as if it is your last prayer. So the notion is here right? that sometimes we do things absentmindedly because we think we're going to get a chance to do them again, right? So pray this one as if maybe it's your last chance. Who knows? Allah huwalam, whether Allah will give me life, whether Allah will give me tawfiq Many things, Allah well, will give me the success, ability, life, to come and appear in front of me again. And if you pray every prayer like it, it is like that, right? And l- let me show, what does this mean? You will see in Ramadan, next week or maybe the week after, you will start feeling, these are my last few days of Ramadan, right? Somebody, you will even find this, it comes in you, it's a mental thing, it's a natural thing, it's my last fast, or oh, it's the last night, or it's the last couple of nights. So when you see something is running out, you start to value it more. When you think it's literally your last one that you've got to spend, your last shot, you try to do it best. So then this is a tool and technique and strategy can also work for us that we can try to do our Salat in the best possible way by thinking that it is our last and final salah, our last and final prayer. And really, I don't know if there's any prayer, look at it this way, I don't know if there's any prayer that I've ever offered in my whole life that is worthy of being that last prayer. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to give me the choice, then go and pick any one of your prayers, anyone that you ever prayed in your whole life, and I will base the swab of all your prayers on that one. I don't even know if I have one that I would be able to pick. <laughs> that's our state, right? Do we even have any prayer in our life that we've ever prayed that is worthy of offering to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So that's another way of thinking. Then let me try in this night of Ramadan, in this day, at this moment, let me pray two rakats that at least maybe just these two rakats might be worth my najat, my emancipation from the hellfire. Let me make some sajda. I to one Let me make one sajda. Let me say one subhana al Allah with such feeling that truly I lose myself and perhaps I gain my Lord. Right? So we should be yearning, right? These little, little things. We should be thinking that, what do I have? What do I have to show for myself? Because the Prophet said on the Day of Judgment, the very first thing that will be looked at is our salah. Number one thing that's going to be looked at. And that's a recurring theme in our whole deen. The number one oft-repeated command in the Qur'an al is aqeem salah over 700 times. Over 700 times in the Qur'an al Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said aqeem salah And the very first thing is going to ask, right? And what do we have, right? What do we have to show for it? The last thing I will mention on this list is du'a. Du'a. This, what we're talking about, to feel Allah in your prayer, this is an incredible thing, we're laughter. We're seeking, we're seekers of gold in this room. We're seeking the treasure, the like of which is greater than all the ma'fis samawatu wa ma'fil ard that is greater than everything that the heaven, firmaments, and the earth contain. We're seeking ta'luq ma'Allah. We're seeking a relationship with Allah, kurbid billah to feel intimately close to Him. That is the most incredible thing to be seeking. So obviously it's going to require a lot of effort, but it's also going to require dua. We have to make lots of dua, and again this is a month in which du'as are perhaps more accepted than other times. So in these moments or days or nights of Kubuli to dua, we should make dua to Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala Allah, I'm ashamed of myself. I can bring I bring nothing to you but my shame. I bring nothing to you but my failures. I bring nothing to you but my yearning and my hope in your mercy. And by looking at your mercy, I am hopeful that, Ya Allah, you can grant me a prayer, a feeling. You can grant me a salat of dhikr. That you can bring me to your murad of and al dhikri. I want to f- fulfill your Quranic message. I want to become a Quranic human being. Right? Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, you and you alone, I'm so gone. I've lost myself so deep in my ghaflat that Allah, you alone have the power to take me out. Now imagine if somebody turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in such a way in such ikhlas, sincerity, using whatever words you want, from the depth of your heart, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never, ever spurn a person. Allah never spurns a mu'min who is seeking him. It's impossible. If we feel distant from Allah, it's not because Allah ta'ala has pulled back from us. It's only and only and always and always because we pulled back from him. There's no other explanation. There's no way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can ever pull back from his mu'min. We have done something. Or fail to do something. And it's just up to us. Right? Many times I explain this as like, in using example of a runaway slave. Or runaway child. But imagine a son who has run away from his mother. Right? Now her, his mother is waiting all the time for her son to return. Every night she is thinking about her son, wondering where her son is, how her son is sleeping, how her son is eating anytime she hears some noise, the clattering of a cur- window, the shaking of a curtain, she thinks it might be her son. If ever her son happens to come back to her, she is not going to be upset. She, won't ask. she will immediately embrace her son and clasp her son to him. Me and you are like the runaway ibad of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is what we are. Ya ibadiyalladheena asrafu ala anfusihm. This Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, O oh, my servants who have done zulm, on themselves, who have wronged themselves, that we should return to Allah. Never despair of Allah's mercy. He is that being who is Hanan and Manan, who can always be reconciled, who is always waiting to patch up. He's just waiting for us. He is waiting for us to return to Him. He wants us to return to Him. And His unlimited boundless Rahmat and mercy and love is there for anybody who returns to Him. So this Ramadan is a month of return. It's a month of Ruju, it's a month of toba. it's a month of Dua. So if we do this Ruju, if we do this toba, if we do this Dua, and if we mention along with all the many other things that we do toba for this, Allah spawned we want to feel you back in our Salah. We want to be aware and have awe and reverence and hope and humility and all of that in our Salah. Allah spawned is the being who can grant it. And if Allah subhanahu grants it to someone, there is no power in the world that can take it away. And if we do not make ourselves such that Allah subhanahu wishes to grant it to us, then there is no technique or tip or strategy that will enable us to acquire it. The last thing I will mention then for today and then I will take your questions is about Surah Al-Fatiha. Because perhaps if we can fix our Fatiha, and I'm doing this because I'm assuming and I'm hopefully correct in this assumption that almost all of us know the meaning of fata. And I'm not going to be able, there's some things that I will actually leave. What I'll do is actually, I'll ask a couple of you to pass out a sheet and if you write your names and your email addresses and your SMS number, then we will have to, I will inshallah do part two of this maybe sometime after Eid and we will contact you and let you know when that part two is. So a couple of the boys, if you can pass around something and if a couple of the girls, don't pass around just one, there are too many people that pass around two or three amongst the boys and girls and you can fill that out as I talk. Surat al-Fatiha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us. The Fatiha itself is an incredible blessing. All of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's revelation, all the benefits of it, all the virtues of it are all contained in the Qur'an al-Qur'an. is no virtue or fazilah or benefit that exists in the Torah or the Injil or the Zabur except that it has been uh, included and perhaps even improved upon in the Qur'an al then the entire khulasah of the Quran the Karim lies in Surah Al-Fatiha. This was referred to as Umm Al-Kitab, as the mother of the Quran, as the essence of the Quran, as the seven oft-repeated verses that Allah himself refers to as Mathani, the seven frequently recited verses of the Quran Al-Karim. And, and it is that Surah that me and you as individuals, as normal Muslims, we have the most connection with it. It's the one we know the best, it's the one we recite the best, it's the one we memorize the best. We normally don't mistakes when we're reciting that. Right? We are so. Why not? If we've got, if we've already got something, we have fateh. Why not improve the quality of that which we already have? Why not improve this fatah? So I'm going to explain to you a way. This is not a formal tafsir of Surah fatayah. that we did last Monday, right? For those of you who were here in the tafsir sessions, right? Uh, this is not a formal tafsir of Surah fatayah. Rather, this is a way that a person should expressively feel Fatiha when they're praying. This is the way the Musalli should feel a way, a possible way, that a person who is offering Salah should try to experience the meaning of Fatah in their prayer. So Allah begins, first thing you will recite, obviously, which is outside of Fatah, is the Audhu Billahi Minash Shaitanirajim, right? Right? And that is that I'm seeking refuge from Shaitan, the accursed one, the repudiated one, the rejected one. So the notion there, if you, what is this? Now, <clears throat> every verse of the Qur'an al-Karim is meant... Every verse of the Qur'an al-Karim is meant to instill a particular emotional response in your heart. This is how I'm going to try to open up Matthew. The Qur'an al is not just there for Tajima. It's not just there for meanings. It's not just there for intellectual philosophy or theology. Every single verse is meant to trigger an emotional state in your heart. So, billahi shaitanir rajim means, number one, that you're seeking what you say in Urdu, Pana, I'm seeking refuge, sanctuary. And who are you seeking that refuge and sanctuary with? With Allah. And so when you say that, and you have absolute iman, yakin, certainty that Allah is giving you that sanctuary, After that one sentence you should feel in complete aman. The emotional feeling you should have after saying that is I'm now completely, I'm in complete aman from shaitan. I've entered aman, I've entered sanctuary. So number one thing, there are two things that normally can detract me, shaitan and my nas. Within the first sentence of salah, shaitan is gone. Gone, finished. I'm in a state of aman. should feel that way. Then bismillah, that I begin with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that being Right, I begin with the madad of Allah, I begin with the barakah of Allah, I begin with the qurb of Allah, I begin with the ta'luk of Allah. I, not, The second I cut myself off from shaitan, I latch myself to Allah SWT. That's what I'm doing in my salah, I'm latching myself to Allah, on the get-go. And Allah SWT is saying that what I want you to do, is when you think of me in the beginning of this prayer, or any surah, as I want you to think of me and know of my dominant sifat. And that is that I am al-Rahman, al Rahim. Al-Rahman is that being who possesses absolute infinite mercy. The infinitely mercy one. The possessor of infinite mercy, mercy incarnate. And Al-Rahim is the being who infinitely disperses that mercy. He disperses, he dispenses, he distributes that mercy. One is to have something. And the other is to bestow that. So Rahman and Rahim means that Allah, Allah possesses absolute mercy. And he showers that mercy Absolutely. So when we think of that, right, what now, what's this, each emotional response is going to trigger the next response. So when we feel that our Rabb, our Allah, who's number one just given me this refuge from shaitan, number two has allowed me to begin this prayer not on my own two feet, not on my own ability, but in His name, in the barakah of His name, in the madad, in the nusrat, the help of His name, and on top of that, He is mercy incarnate and He is the dispenser of all mercy. So from your heart should come for such a being, Alhamd, that your heart will feel that for such a being, I feel all Alhamd. Every single type of praise, all praise, praise itself, praise proper, belongs only to Allah, befits only Allah, is deserving only to Allah. This is my feeling after, this is my emotional state after I said rahim, Such a being. Then Allah Ta'ala tells us something else about Himself, that He is Rabbul Alamin. That know that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala is not an abstract, distant God. He is Rabb. Rabb means a being who does art. what you say in Urdu, parverdagar, you're He is nourishing you, He is upbringing you, He is sustaining you. He is involved with each and every second of your life. With His Hidayah, with His Rahmah, with His Barakah. That is what Allah is, He is our Rabb. So the second sifat, the first is the sifat of Mercy. The second sifat Allah ta'ala wants us to inscribe in our heart is the sifat of Rububiyyah, Alameen. And know that He is the Rub of not just us, not just Rab, Rabbi or Rabbul Nas, but Rabbul Alameen, all the worlds, all the universes, the known, the unknown, the human, the angelic, the jinn, the physical, the non physical, dark matter, whatever you want. Allah SWT is the Rub of each and everything. Now, what happens here when a person realizes that, that my Rub, My Allah is the rub of the whole universe Yet He didn't forget me (laughs) Me this little insignificant human being If you think about our haqqiqat If you ever look at astrophysics, right? Me and you are like a speck on Lahore (laughs) And Lahore is a speck on Punjab Right? It's a speck on Pakistan And Pakistan is a speck on this globe And this earth is a speck on the solar system. And this solar system is a speck on our Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy is just a speck on our galaxy cluster. And that galaxy cluster is just a speck on the known universe. And the known universe is just a speck on Allah's Alameen and all of makhluk is just a speck in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, ya Allah, my haqique. it is, I'm just a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck, and you are Rub and Allah and Lord of all of that, yet you remembered me, you gave me hidayah, you put me on this musallah, you let me pray to you, you are watching me, you are listening to me, you are listening to my salah, any being who is that must be, and again you were forced to say it, al-Rahman rahim so first when Allah Ta'ala told you in the Bismillah to say Ar-Rahman rahim that was declarative. He was declaring himself to you as Ar-Rahman rahim After realizing that and making that part of your Aqidah and then saying Alhamd and knowing His Rabbil Alameen, then we ourselves once again say that, Ya Allah, truly you are Ar-Rahman rahim So Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. And Allah says, let me tell you my next sifat. I told you about my Rahmah. I told you my Rububiyah. Now know something else, learn that I am Malik. Malik, I have a complete power, owner, possession, sovereignty. I am the Malik, right? So these two things, Rub and Malik, is what makes a person who that's coming. Malik, Allah SWT is the complete owner, master, sovereign. That also should have an effect on us, right? That okay, Allah SWT, you're also a Malik. Right? And Allah to drive the point further says, Maliki يَوْمِ that And there will be a day when my mulukiyat, my mastery, my sovereignty will be manifest, will be absolute. al mulkul Yom Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran that on that day of judgment, who else will have the mulk? Who else has that sovereignty? So, يَوْمِ that know that there will be a day in which we will be presented before our Rabb. And he is Rahman and he is Rahim and he is Rabb. But he is also Malik and his Muluqiyat is also going to be Zahir. And we will have to face him as our Malik on the Day of Judgment. Even though he may not be here right now, he is a Sisivat of Hilm. He abstains from exercising his punishment on this earth. Otherwise, his Hakikat, his Shaan, it would have been perfectly just for him. That the second we used our tongue in disobedience, he should have made us mute. The second we used our eyes in disobedience, he should have made us blind. The second we did anything, he should have immediately, there should have been no need. But his attribute is his Al hanim Al hanim is that being who has him. He has reserved the manifestation of his mulukiyat, his being Malik for that day. So it's a reminder. So when Allah SWT says that Malik Yomidin gives us a next instruction, a next information about him, then immediately a person looks at these two things. That this rub, what should be my relationship with the rub? And what should be my relationship with Malik? that relationship is that I'm an abd. A person themselves come to this, not because it's their theology, because they were grown up, a person just due to this, this surah, Fatiha, themselves is emotionally going to come to the position, the self-realization that I'm an abd. Allah, as you are declaring to be Allah, as you are declaring yourself to be Rahman, Rahim, you are declaring yourself to be Rub of the Alameen, of Malik, of the Yomideen, in response to this, all I have to declare is that I'm your abd. اِيَّاكَ nabudu. I declare my ubudiyah to you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For all those reasons. Number one, that if you're such a merciful being, I have to be an abd of such a merciful being. If you are my rab, if you are nursing and sustaining me, then I should be an abd of such a rab. If you remembered me, along with all of the alameen, I want, I lovingly, devotingly be abd of such a rab. And ya Allah, if you are malik, if you are my malik, and you are going to be my malik and my yawm then I, obviously I also have reason to become your abd. So I say all of this with a level of exclusivity from my heart, iya kana that Allah subhanahu wa you and you alone do I worship. You're saying it from the heart. If you can learn to say fatah from the heart, that is a one-step way to fix your whole salah. One-step way to fix your whole salah. Now what happens when a person says this, right? You just said that. Now your heart's going to feel something else. Say, ya Allah, and you would say this in Urdu, <laughs> I have plans that I'm going to be your abd. That is something. And that I'm going to do it only of you. Iyaka. Immediately I realize that I'm not up to this task. Even being your abd is beyond my ability. I'm too naqas for this. I alone will not be able to do this. I cannot do this of my own ability, my own power. <laughs> ya Allah, I seek your help. <laughs> I just said I'll be your abd, but Ya Allah, I need your help to do this. It's only your hidayah that can make me an abd. It's only your rahmat that can make me an abd. I might slip and fall, it's only your makfrah that will keep me an abd. I might do something wrong, it's only your rahmat, your mercy, that will restore me to be an abd. I might run away from you, it's only your being hanan and manan, that will accept me back as your abd. I cannot do it on my own. nasta'een, I need your help to become your abd. You say it with your heart. Right? Then you do the first act of seeking that help. Allah Ta'ala is guiding us in the Qur'an al through His revelation that what should that first? What is the first that I need from you, Allah? I'm not just pledging this vocally that I'm going to seek your help. I'm going to seek your help right here, right now by making a du'a. The very first dua, the number one dua that a mu'min needs is a dua of hidayah. Ihdina Ya Allah grant me hidayah. Grant me that hidayah. This, I'll never be able to be this. I'll never be able to be your abd without your help. And what is that help that I need to be your abd? It's hidayah from you. Why do I use the plural in this? Ehdina. Ya Allah, number one, because I'm saying this on part of all of my fellow mu'mineen. That nobody can come up to this. Or I'm saying in the sense of a royal wee that Allah all of me, the totality of myself, needs your hidayah. Ihdina. Grant me your hidayah. Now Allah Ta'ala then tells us in Fatah, what is it? Right? What is it that we should want? And this selection and the next few words are critical to our understanding of the deen and what hidayah is. Allah Ta'ala could have said many things here. Allah Ta'ala's Ahkum al-Haqimeen, His choice of words is critical. We could have said, Ilaik, guide us to you. We could have said, guide us to the book and the sunnah. Allah Ta'ala said that there's something I want you to realize. There's something that I'm going to put out there. And if you stick to that thing, and you will do that to, due to my hidayah, you will be set. You will be able to become my abd. What is that? The siratul mustaqim. ihdina siratul mustaqim. Allah Subh'anaHu Ta'ala guide me on that path that path that will cut through this twisted maze and jungle of temptation that is called Hayatul Dunya, that path that is Mustaqeem, that is straight, that is established, that is clear, that is manifest, right? If you grant me Hidayah to that path, anytime I go off, you guide me back to it, as long as I'm on that path, I will be able to become your Abd, I will be able to be true to my message, to my mission. Then Allah Sallallahu mentions that path. What did he say again? He could have said, Quran القرآن والسنة. He said, siratul اللذين أَنْ Amta عَلَيْهِمْ That this is not a path that is, this is a well-treaded path, a well-trodden path. There are footsteps of people on this path. I'm not going to do this alone. It's not just me and Quran and Bukhari and some texts. This is a path traveled by people. siratul اللذين أَنْ Amta عَلَيْهِمْ who are these people elsewhere in the Qur'an? Allah subhanahu ta'ala mentions those who He has done an'amullah, those who He has sent in inamatan. an was-Siddiqin, was-Shuhada, was salihin. So it means that every time we are making du'a of Surah Fatih, we are saying, guide me to the path of the an The Siddiqin, And nabiyyin you all know, those are the Prophets of Allah. The Siddiqin, those who were Siddiq, those who were the true followers of the Anbiya, who were true to the revelation, true to the prophecy, was-Shuhada. The martyrs, those who would sacrifice their lives in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, shahadati hakiki, or there are different types of shahadat-e hukmi But the shuhada was salihin, another subset of mu'mineen. The salih, the ones who were righteous, who were pious, who were people of taqwa, who abstained from sin, who worshipped you devotedly and piously, it's a path of people. It's a path of people, I have to look for the footsteps of the siddiqin, of the salihin. I want that path. So that's also a big mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not abstract, it's not a go alone deen. This deen is going to be done in the company of people. That's why it says in the Qur'an al-Karim, كُنُوا مَا is a variance from the same root. Put your kunu, put your very being with the sadiqin. Join yourselves with the sadiqin. That is the way of the Surat al Mustaqim. And just like they are people, who had Allah Ta'ala's in'am, had His favors, had His blessings, there are also other people. So the divergences from the path are also populated. They also have footsteps. They have also been treaded. I will be allured by those footsteps. So, I, so Allah Ta'ala teaches us in the Quran, غَيْرِ الْمَغْظُومِ عَلَيْهِمْ Number one, do not guide me on that sirat, on that path of those who have reached your ghadab, who have gotten your displeasure, your anger, your wrath. Due to their disbelief maybe, due to their hypocrisy, due to their ideology, due to their sins, due to their disobedience, due to their inability to obey, due to their leaving. Now if you contrast it, due to their leaving the Nabiyyin, it's a departure. Due to their leaving the Siddiqeen, due to their leaving the Salihin, for whatever it is, they departed from the path. So if the path is the path of the siddiqeen and Salihin, anybody who leaves, the siddiqeen Salihin has left Siratul Mustaqim. And the second then is, right, so two groups, Ghairu مَغْلُوبِ alayhim and the second group are the Dhalin. Well, the and those who have gone astray. So what does it mean? There is one group of people who because they incur the wrath of Allah, Allah tosses them astray. And there are other groups of people who themselves wander astray on their own. Right? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we want neither to ever do anything such that you would take us off this path and we never want either for ourselves to do something that we ourselves stray off this path. So, so much emphasis on this Siratul Mustaqim. I'll explain this to you in a hadith. The Prophet was once sitting with the sahaba and he drew a line. And he went like this, in the sand. He drew a line in the sand. And he said that this is the Salat al-Mustaqim. This is sahih This is the Salat al-Mustaqim. And what the Prophet ﷺ does is extremely important, right? These days you have a cartographer and he draws a line in a map and every single line means something. And you think because this person is a master of map, map every single line and dot must have meaning. Well, the Prophet was a master of the deen. If he chooses to draw a line, it has meaning, right? It has meaning. And then he drew just like this, ways off of it. And there will be people who depart from the Surat al Mustaqim. So why, why draw a line? Why not just say, just draw a point? The purpose of drawing a line is that we have we are following a line. If you were in the time of the Sahaba, then that line is the Prophet ﷺ and the previous Anbiya. If you are in our age, this is a line that has to connect you back to the Prophet ﷺ to a continuous and unbroken chain of transmission. The Surat al-Mustakim cannot be that the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba knew something then nobody knew it. Then you jump all the way up to the year 1200 and somebody all of a sudden comes up with it again. That's a disconnected line. Allah Ta'ala has preserved the Salat al-Mustaqim. Every single generation of this Ummah received Hidayah. The Salat mustaqim was there in the time of the Sahaba, in the time of the Tabiin, in the time of the Tabay Tabin, in the generation after them, all the way up to this generation. So we, in order to reach the original Islam, which is the Islam of the Sahaba, the only way you can reach that is through a continuous line that goes back to it. Anybody who claims that they're linking you to the Islam the Sahaba by giving you jumps, that the Sahaba knew it and the and nobody knew it until Falafala, so-so scholar came around. That's impossible. Impossible. That's not a sirat al-Mustaqim. The sirat al-Mustaqim is a continuous... This is what the Prophet drew. So when we're asking for this Hidayah, we're saying that we're part of an Ummah. Right, This is an incredible blessing. If you were to study, and that's a different topic for another time, but the type of Siddiqeen and Salihin, Allah Ta'ala has given this Ummah, Allahu Akbar. Just as He has given the greatest Nabi, from amongst Nabi'een, Rasulullah just like that, He has given the greatest Siddiqeen and Salihin to this Ummah. And that is our way, that we are the people who follow the Siddiqeen, all of them. We love and respect all of the Siddiqeen and Salihin. We say all of them are on Haqq because all of them have been mentioned as the Salat mustaqim and the Quran al And every single day we make this du'a for the Hidayah. So it's joining us to the Ummah at the end. That is what Fatah is doing. So if you say Fataha in this way, recite Fatah from your heart with this meaning, with this expression, then Fatah is something incredible. It brings us to Allah, our Rabb and our Malik. It brings us to His Rahmah. It brings us to our own Ubudiyah. It brings us to seeking His help. It grants us His Hidayah. And it brings us to the company of the Sunnah of the Paltasam Nabi'in and the company and the path of the Siddiqin Salihin. It keeps us from going, being taken off. It keeps us from wandering astray. If we can recite our Fatah with meaning, your whole Salah will be fixed. If you say, how could you say such a prayer with meaning and after that be turned off? Fataha was designed to turn you on in your salah in such a way that you would have to force yourself to turn off by saying salam. That's what the salam is. The salam should be wrenching you out of salah. They should be wrenching you out. So here we end, right, this first session on uh, perfecting our prayer. We'll take some questions from you. Inshallah, we will have the second session. Maybe we can have it in Ramadan or we'll have it after Eid. If you've signed up, you can sign up or sign up on your way out to be contacted. So I will stop now for your questions. Mm-hmm. Anybody wants to write a question, they can write a question and pass it up. If you want to write a question and pass it up, oh, oh one minute. Let me just. Okay, that's a very good question. And the question is that that sometimes, uh, I, the, the questioner is saying that sometimes I am not sure, I don't have yaqeen that Islam is the right religion. And sometimes I'm not really even sure that Allah subhanahu exists, right? And certainly, if we're not sure that Allah exists, or Islam is the right religion, then that's going to be very difficult for us to be able to connect in our prayer, to connect in our salah. What is it that a person can be doing? So the first thing is, right, that, which you've already done, is to be honest, right? If you deny, if any one of us deny a problem that we have, then we'll never be able to solve it. So if a person has doubts about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or about his existence, or about the Quran, or about the Prophet or about anything, a person has to be open about that. And this is the subject of a lot of other sessions that we normally do in class and stuff, trying to uh, remove certain doubts that people have about Allah and the deen. If a person has these doubts, and the person's mentioning also that reading Quran and praying don't necessarily help. Uh, certainly reading Quran in tarjama tafsir may not necessarily help, right? And we should know that this deen and this feeling in iman is not something that is purely academic. It's not that simple that if somebody has a weakness or a crisis in iman, you just stick the Quran in their hand and ask them to read. I wish it was that simple. I wish it was that simple, but unfortunately it's not. It's not that simple, Right? Uh, how do you get yaqeen? Allah spawned said in the Quran al-Kareem, wa'mudullah ha-hatta an-ta'ti Some people are of the view that yaqeen here means mought and death, but there is no hadith in anywhere that says this word means mought. Different mufassirs have understood this word differently. Some have said yaqeen means mought, they keep worshipping Allah until you die. Others have said yaqeen means yaqeen fil iman. Because the way the word yakin is used elsewhere in the Qur'an al-Karim refers to a certain unshakable faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If that is the case, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that yakin and iman is going to come through ibadah. You have to try to experience Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Another way he's explained this in the Qur'an is the verse, Al-Rahman fas'al bihi khabira. Al-Rahman, he declares himself that I am Rahman, the All-Merciful One. If you want to know, What that means that Allah is al-Rahman. Fas'al, ask, make su'al. Bihi khabira, that person who knows, who is informed, who has experienced the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the way then a person can become more firm on their yaqeen, right? And more firm on their iman is by spending time or spending company in those people who are firm in their iman. Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah, who we discussed some of his teachings in the beginning, he had a laqab, his name was Hujjatul islam. The reason for that was number one, that people said the very fact that somebody like Ghazali has become a Muslim, that itself is a proof of Islam. <laughs> the proof of the, I mean, what type of people were they? Allahu <inaudible> Akbar One can only imagine what a person Imam Ghazali was that people felt just the very fact that he is a Muslim is a proof of Islam. And the second reason was, is that they felt that when we sit with Ghazali and we watch him, we realize that Islam is true. Let me explain. Me and you are weak Muslims. If you want to see the truth of Islam, you have to see a true Muslim. And all of you know this, you have heard the statement and you know this is our belief in the deen that Islam has such a power that human beings can be even better than the angels. But how many of us have met such a human being? When you meet such a human being who has risen above the ranks of the rebels of angels and you see the power that Islam has, you see the Quranic, Nabawi, Imani, Islami, Asani, Mu'min in front of you, then you realize that, yes, whatever teaching created this human being, that is Haq. That is the Haqqaniyat. In other words, the ayat of Allah, the signs of Allah are these Siddiqeen and salihin. That's why He's peppered the al Mustaqim with them. So to know the Haqqaniyat of the Deen, either those people who saw the Prophet, sallam, but we're not able to do that, so we have to see the true heirs, His true successors, the embodiments of the Quran and the Sunnah, right? And then we will realize that Islam is true. That is one way to do it. Second way is that a person should make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if you're, I mean, in this state, you can make this dua. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I am unsure. I've entered a crisis of faith. Where I'm even beginning to doubt your own existence or the veracity of your own deen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I turn to you. You alone can take me out of this crisis. I ask you to send your hidayah upon me, I ask you to make my qalb, my heart mutma'in, uh, completely content with the deen. Third thing, a person can recite a du'a that the Prophet taught us in the hadith, billahi rabbah, wa wa that I am pleased to have Allah as my Rabb, I am pleased to have the Prophet as my Nabi, and I am pleased to have the deen, this deen of Islam, I am pleased to have Islam as my deen. The fourth thing is a person should not abandon their ibadah. You should maintain your ibadah. And think and hope that due to this ibadah, due to this verse from the Quran that I recited to you, Wa اللَّهَ حَتَّى أَن تَعْتِهَ Due to this ibadah, you will be able to get yakin. So search for Allah. If you find that you're distant from Allah, or you're doubting Allah, you have to search. Now where are you going to find Him? You're not going to find Him in textbooks. You're going to find Him in your sajda. You're going to find Him in your du'a. You're going to find him in your istighfar. So maintain your ibadah and search for Allah throughout your ibadah. If you search for Him, He is the eternally besought. If you search for Him, He will seek you out. If you become His murid, He will make you His murad. If you seek Him in you yourself will be found. Right? One question. Adilasar for No, Sajdat al-Sahaw is a particular thing that is supposed to be used for particular mistakes that we make in prayer, right? And those are when we leave the wajibat and salah. Now, if you feel that you were forgetful, right? If we feel that we were forgetful in our prayer, there are many things we should do. But we do not make Sajjata, saho this particular two extra prostrations offered at the end of prayer, which are known as the prostrations of forgetfulness, if you will. We don't do that for this reason, right? What you can do is after you finish your Salah, if you want, you can pray that whole prayer over again. You can say, I just prayed that Zohar so unthinkingly, let me offer it again. You can, if you want, pray some Nafil to compensate for that Zohar. You can make dua to Allah. You can fall into sajda after the prayer and make nafli dua on that sajda in any language that you want. So there are many, many things a person can do. But sajda to saw is a specific uh, act which is prescribed for specific omissions and not for this notion of being forgetful in the prayer. All right? Ah, oh, correct. Uh, The Paul says that the angels, which means the angels of mercy, do not enter that home in which tasawir are publicly displayed, that are open or that are up on the wall, right? So ideally you would want to make your homes free of such things. If not possible, try to pray in a room or sitting, which I mentioned, the environment, which is free of such things, right? Question here is that... uh, That having love for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is something that is natural. And because in this day and age in our society we may not be allowed to get married until a later age, then what exactly am I supposed to do about this love in my heart if this is what is preventing me from feeling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in my prayer? This is a whole... This could be a whole other Saturday workshop, right? Uh, But certainly... uh, Basically, you have to sacrifice the lesser love for the higher love. You have to sacrifice a lower love for a greater love. I do not in any way deny that this love is natural. do not in any way deny that the environment that all of you are placed in, and unfortunately we are sitting in today as well, of co-education, right? Uh, of being co-educated in your O-levels, in your A-levels, in your college, so you're exposed so much to the opposite gender that, illa mashallah other than being a complete welly or a complete freak, <laughs> you will feel some <laughs> attraction at some point or the other to somebody of the opposite gender. So, now what does Islam say about that, right? So, I'm not saying it's unnatural to feel it. What I'm saying is it's Islamic to suppress that feeling. There are many things that you will find, this is what we call your tab'iyah, your tabiyyah might feel many things that are not allowed in Islam. Love for this it's not just this almost all those things. Your tabiyah wants to do ribat. Your tabiat wants to say something bad about that person. Your tabiat wants to have takabbur. Your tabiyah wants to have materialistic things. These are all things in our tabiat, right? This is the, the this is the Islamic teaching that sacrifice your tabiat for the shariat. So if there's something that pleases me but it displeases Allah, The fact that it displeases Allah is meant to outweigh, supersede however much it pleases me. right? And that's, you have to build yourself up to that level. The more and more we love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more and more we will love that which He loves. And we will dislike that which He dislikes. Practically speaking, I've given uh, two talks on this. uh, One actually very long talk on this on the internet. So, and that's a very long talk. It's a very intense talk. Some of you may or may not be ready for it. I'm sometimes myself surprised at the intensity of that talk I gave. Uh, I gave it in Ithikaf in Chicago in 2004. So, very... But, if you want to, there's actually... I think you can actually get it on the site. If you go to this website, you islamicspirituality.com or actually it might be islamicspirituality.org And that talk is called uh, Controlling Your Desires. Controlling Your Desires. So I've spoken on this at length, right? If you are to download or whatever, stream or listen to it, however you listen to it, that has a lot. Just very briefly now, because obviously not everybody is going to go and listen to that, uh, you have to do whatever you can, however you can, to stay away from this sin. That is the most simple thing I can say. You have to do whatever you can, however you can, to stay away from the sin. You should make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, make istighfar, make tawbah to Him, make dua to Allah ta'ala, I want you to be my beloved. Right? Have we ever tried that? Right? I mean, these duas I'm telling you are things that we haven't tried. Maybe because we're ashamed and so do not do to any shame or modesty before Allah hold yourself back in dua. You should openly speak to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and make dua. That's one I want you to be my beloved, avert my eyes and avert my attention from the worldly loves. And if you save yourself for a proper nikah, and this is another thing I was mentioning was the two three nights ago. That another reason that we fall into these false loves is that we don't understand the real love that Allah Ta'ala wants us to save ourselves for. So read or study and increase your ilm about what nikah is, how Allah Ta'ala conceives of the husband-wife relationship. I mean, realize the nobility and rank of that U.S., that's not even what's on offer to you <laughs> in A-levels at the university. That's not even the type of relationship that what you are proposing to one another. That relationship. And if you allow yourself this one, that you're going to lose the barakah of that one. And that's why you will find in the 30-something crowd in Pakistan, people are more and more unhappy marriages because they did things in their 20s and they did things in their 20s, sometimes even with each other, right? But prior to nikah, and due to that disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the barakah of their nikah is gone. And they're going to be unhappily married. Now who wants to be unhappily married? Raise your hand. Bus? Pair. And if you don't want to be unhappily married, then don't try to be happily unmarried. <laughs> right? Better to be unhappily unmarried and then become happily married. right? All right? But it's a very long thing, you know, for the more longer answer, you, should, you can really go to that. I try to keep this in order. Obviously, we have gone way beyond Salah in the question and answer session. The drawing of the line in the sand, uh, this person is asking a question suggesting that, no, the Quran and Sunnah has been declared sufficient for salvation, right? If the Quran and Sunnah is declared sufficient for salvation, there's nowhere, nowhere in the Quran does it say that the Quran and Sunnah alone are sufficient for salvation. The Prophet ﷺ said in the farewell pilgrimage, and I'm leaving two things behind me for you, that is my book and that is my Sunnah. That is there, that is that is our legacy, that what we have from the Prophet ﷺ is scriptural revelation, the Quran of and non-scriptural revelation, the Sunnah. But the Quran of itself is saying that the Surat al this is not Kamaluddin, the Qur'an is saying the Surat al is the path of the Siddiqeen and the Salihin. So if the Qur'an is saying that this path that every day so many times you ask for a for is the path of Siddiqeen and Salihin, I would counter-ask and how can we somehow replace it and say you don't need Siddiqeen and Salihin. Siddiqeen and Salihin are those people who are doing Amal on the Qur'an and Sunnah. They're the living tradition. You see... Many people have very misunderstanding. Let me give an example. If you were to meet Sayyidina Abu Huraira, let's say you were to meet him, and he was to tell you, for example, that a woman should pray in a particular way, would you go to Abu Huraira and say that, well, hold on, let me pick up my books of Hadith. You know, it's not there. I'm sorry, Abu Huraira, I'm not going to listen to you. Obviously not. The Sahaba, the living tradition, is the way this deen was transmitted. Later on, that became textualized. And that textual corpus, to, in order to study that, requires a lot of ilm. Right? That is something we're going to explain to you. I'm going to show this to you next Saturday's workshop. It's called Understanding the Islamic Scholarly Tradition. That is going to make it clear to you what exactly how the ulama and the siddiqin and salihin have approached the Quran and sunnah. And so what really is it about is that are we going to approach the Quran and sunnah the same way they have? Or are we going to try to approach it directly without using them at all? And that is what I'm going to explain to you next week, because unfortunately in this day and age we have a lot of very fancy slogans, right? That you can leave everything and just follow the the book and the hadith. Obviously you should not follow anything else, but can you follow them without? Can you follow hadith without the muhaddisin? Can you follow Quran without the mufassirin? Can you know about halal and haram without the fuqaha? Is that possible or not? This is what I'm going to explain to you one week from today at 3 p.m. But the Quran and makes it clear that the Suratul Mustaqim is something alhamdulillah. This is the mercy of Allah swt. Why would we want to throw out our legacy? This is his mercy that he has made us an ummat of the Siddiqeen and Sanaqen. person is saying that there are certain things I know that I'm doing that are not uh, correct. So why should I not... Uh, I'm not able... It's okay, I think I understand the question. The question is that there are certain things that I do that I want to stop. And I want to stop doing them. But I don't have the ability to do so. So why is it that Allah subhanahu wa has not given me the ability to do so? Or if Allah subhanahu has given everyone the power to overcome their sins and what is it that I can do to activate that power inside me because I'm not able to overcome them. Alright. There are many, many things that a person can do. This is known as mujahidah as sa'i. Right? Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala says in the Quran, illa <laughs> that a person will not have anything except that he makes sa'i, he makes effort for it. There are many, many efforts that a person can do to overcome their sin. So you are right in acknowledging in identifying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can and will inshallah ta'ala, give all of us the power to overcome our sin. Absolute power belongs only to Allah La Hawla Walla quwata illa billah. But if you turn to Allah subhanahu in sincere repentance and He can create a makhraj or an exit for our sin. So the number one thing is to turn to him even more because Allah subhanahu said in the Quran referring to the nafs Amara. In the amara amaratun Bisu that really the nafs commands you to do evil, except for that person who Allah Ta'ala sent his mercy on. So it means that basically, I'm going to be overpowered by my nafs, rather than the other way around. Except when Allah Ta'ala sends his mercy on me. So that is another wonderful thing about this month of Ramadan, that this month is a month of mercy. If I can somehow do certain amal-is-salih to make myself a magnet for Allah's mercy, then when I get that mercy, Allah will extract me from my sins. So yes, sometimes we might in, in, at one level we can honestly feel that I'm not able to stop myself, right? And a person at one level may honestly be saying that, but we cannot be content at that. What we have to do is turn to Allah SWT and ask Him to increase our capacity or to increase our ability to realize our capacity which has just been shrouded and numbed by repeated and repeated commission of that sin. When I said to increase the tasbihat in prayers, I, didn't, I meant the ex- existing tasbihat, the same Subhan rabbi al but the number of times you say it in ruku. So instead of thrice, you can say it five times, seven times, nine times, eleven times, etc. Similarly, for subhanu rabbi al-a'la, for com I recited, actually, right, a extra tasbih which a sahaba did. The Prophet never taught this. A sahaba on his own huh, came up with this, uh, and, and the Prophet ﷺ uh, certified this, that, Allahumma rabbana walakal hamd, hamdan kathiran, tayyiban mubarakan fi. It is a longer dua and comma. Alright? So those are the, uh, the tasbiyat that you can add. There's also something called Salatul tasbih uh, that you can probably even Google that on the internet, find a way, uh, the method and the way of praying that. That is something that a person can do in this month of Ramadan as well. But that is other than the first salah, that is enough of prayer. Oh. And these are some big ones. I'll get. This is also a big one okay. If the purpose of salah is the dhikr of Allah, then why do we have to follow a specific series of postures? Why can, why can we not just pray through anyway? Alright, certainly if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَأَكِيمُوا صَلَاطُ الْذِكْرِ That is not the only teaching in the Qur'an al about salah. We should also be very careful about we can never pluck one ayah or pluck one hadith and make that one verse, that one hadith, the sole basis of our understanding of an entire phenomenon. We started with that ayah today because today the purpose of today's session was how to bring that zikr of Allah back into our prayer. However, prayer is not just mutlak zikr. We have to pray the way the Prophet ﷺ instructed us to pray, right? We have to pray in the way that Allah Ta'ala wants us to pray. This is the shan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that we cannot come to Allah Ta'ala on our own terms. This is His Majesty, His Lordship that we must come to Him on the terms that He dictates to us. If He has dictated ruku, warku ma Raqeen, that is in the Qur'an. Eyes of sajda, but I will not recite because then sajda will become wajib. But there are about sajda in the Qur'an al-Karim. Right? So these things are mentioned, these postures that you're talking about. Ruku and sajda and qiyam. All three words, al-faz, come in the Qur'an al-Karim. So if Allah subhanahu ta'ala wishes that we worship Him standing or bowing or prostrating, then we wish what He wishes for ourselves because He is ahkum al-hakimin. Notwithstanding that Allah Ta'ala has made, you have to distinguish between ibadat. There's one type of ibadah which is formal ibadah. Formal and formalized ibadah. In that we cannot do any changes. Such as the salah. There are two types of ibadah that Allah Ta'ala has left open, mutlak. That is du'a and zikr. You can make du'a any way in any language that you want. If somebody were to tell you that it's bidah to make du'a except using du'a and hadith, they are wrong. Otherwise, Imam Sudeis is doing a bidat every single night in front of the Kaaba in Tarawi. He makes du'as in dua kunut that are not found in Hadith. Oh, he's mentioning Philistine and Chechen, even other du'as that he makes, other than those, right? Du'a has been left open by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Certainly, it's adab to begin your du'a with a few of the transcribed, transmitted du'as from the Quran and Hadith. But after that, you can make du'a in any way that you want. So by saying salah, formalized worship, is restricted to its particular way, doesn't mean Allah Ta'ala is restricted all imbadat. You can make du'a however you want, whatever tasbih you want, you can praise Allah, you can do any combination of praises, you can turn to Him from your heart, you can spill your guts to Him, in any language that you want, with no condition of wudu, facing the Kaaba, anytime, 24 hours, a whole year, you can make du'a. So that which Allah Ta'ala has made formal and formalized we leave it formal and formalized and that which Allah Ta'ala has left open the second thing is dhikr Allah Ta'ala said in the Quran Kareem ya ayyuhallazina amunzukurullah dhikran kathira but he is not restricted anywhere in the Quran how to make dhikr like he is not restricted anywhere in the Quran how to make dua so you can make dhikr there might be some ways mentioned in the Quran For example, the Qur'an mentions a silent zikr of the heart. You can do that. The Hadith mentions certain zikrs to say La ilaha illa on your tongue. You can do that certainly. But just like in du'a, you are not in any way confined to the du'as mentioned in the Qur'an and the sunnah. You're not similarly confined in zikr. So there are ways of doing ibadah. There is a confined. You cannot do any du'a or zikr that's against the sharia. You cannot do any du'a or zikr, the words of which or the method of which is against the sharia. Such as the musical, dancing, zikr, or the making dua for something that is haram, that is against sharia, right? So, don't think that, you know, our deen only has this formalized ibadah. There is the formal ibadah that has its own place, and the informal ibadah has its own place, and a successful person is the one who does both. So, we want to become people of salah. That's in the Quran. We want to become people of dua. That is in the Quran. We want to become people of dhikr. That is also in the Quran and Right? The next question is... Uh, Right, uh, from, uh, what does Allah, Allah say about nuns and religious leaders of other religions? Khair, I mean, the number one teaching about any nun or religious leader from any other religion is that they are part of the Ummati Dawah. The prophetic message applies to them absolutely. They are recipients, they're mad'u of the Qur'an and the sunnah of Rasulullah He is the last and final messenger and his Nabuwa is kamal and mukamal. And it covers every single person on earth. And therefore, a person should make dawah to them to invite them to the message of Islam. Right? And you can make Dua for their hidayah. You can make Dua for the hidayah of a non-Muslim. As to what Islam says about their afterlife, we cannot say what Islam says about any particular person. But we can recite a verse to you from the Qur'an al Kareem. That, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلُ الْكِتَابِ Verily those who choose to disbelieve and deny from the Ahlul Kitab وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ and from the Mushrikeen فِي نَارِ جَهَنَّمَا خَالَدِينَ فِيهَا That they would be in the hellfire and they would dwell therein. Alright? This is perhaps not the most feel-good teaching of Islam. This is not something that you were required to dwell upon. This is not something that you're supposed to think about. It's not our job. Nowhere is it the mizaj of the Qur'an or the mizaj of Rasulullah or the mizaj of the sunnah that me and you are supposed to be condemning people to hellfire or to be imagining them in hellfire or taking the names of particular nuns and priests and saying they're in hellfire. No. That actually, those verses are actually addressed to them. And if you have a chance to make dawah to them, you can try to tell them. Maybe not the first thing you would say, but amongst the things you would explain to them is, look, if you don't accept this dawah, Allah Ta'ala will be displeased. And he has prepared a punishment for those that he is displeased with. So those verses, again, like I said, every verse is intended to give an emotional response. These verses are not meant to create an emotional response in us of condemning a non-Muslim religious leader or imagining them uh, burning or anything like that. All right. How do you inspire... What is the difference between the word deen and madhab? If there is any, can you please define both? The word "deen" refers to the complete package, the whole deen of this, the whole deen, which name of which is Islam, In the hadith of the Muslim in Bukhari and Muslim he mentioned four components of this: Islam, Iman, Asan, and understanding of the Hour and of the end of time. All right. The word "mazhab" in Urdu, the word "mazhab" in Urdu, pretty much means deen. Okay. We say "vo Christian mazhab ka hai," "vo Jewish mazhab hai," and the word Arabic "madhab." comes from the Arabic verb which means to go which means a particular legal methodology it is not a sect it is not a division sect means a difference in aqidah the Arabic word for sect is firqah these are not sects these are not divisions and you will learn this next Saturday that many times people try to confuse us and try to paint a straw man for us that the Muslims have been divided into four sects and we are going to come and unite you on one platform called the Quran and Sunnah Whereas actually the reality as you will learn next Saturday is that there are multiple understandings of the Quran and Sunnah. For anyone to claim that my understanding is just Quran and Sunnah and their understanding is Ghazali's understanding or Shafi's understanding is completely wrong, is intellectual dishonesty, is nothing less than a fraud and a deception. And I will explain this to you clearly next Saturday. Rather is that there are multiple understandings, right? There's no way anybody can claim that I am just Qur'an. And if I tell you, Kamaluddin tells you this is what Surah Fatihah means. Somebody else tells you that's what Fatihah means. So basically, you have Kamaluddin's interpretations and X's interpretation. There's no way you can call X's interpretation Qur'an and call this Kamaluddin or call what I say Qur'an and call what he says just as interpretations. These four madhahib in Sunni usul al-fiqh are four legal methodologies that the vast majority, 99% of all the Mufassrin and Muhaddisin, let alone the Hadith scholars, right? Imam al-Nawi of Riyadh al-Salin was a Shafi, right? Uh, Imam al-Kurtabi, mufassir of Tafsir al Qurtubi, was a Maliki. So the vast majority, over 90% of the Tafsir scholars and these scholars chose to follow their legal methodology from one of the four established sets of usul. This is a very complicated topic. It's very unfortunate to understand it properly it takes a lot of time. And to misunderstand it, it takes very little time. And to misrepresent it can take five minutes, right? So we don't have the time for me to explain this to you. There's a whole course we teach at Lums called Islamic Jurisprudence that if a person really after doing the whole course can properly understand what this is. But the Arabic word deen and the Arabic madhab are different. The Arabic word deen is Islam. And the Arabic word madhab means a legal methodology that is used to derive rulings from the Quran and Sunnah. And that is only done when either you have multiple texts that are suggestive of multiple meanings, or a single text that is suggestive of multiple meanings, or no text, such as there's a test you baby halal or haram. You cannot find any hadith that will give you a fatwa on that, or any ayah that will give you a fatwa. You must design legal methodology to come up with principles to derive rulings based on those principles from the Quran and Sunnah. That's as detailed an answer as I can go on. But like I said, next week, we will actually, I will try in one session actually to explain this to you a bit more. How do you inspire your husband or wife to tread on the Islamic path that you yourself have chosen now? What you should realize is many times what happens is that a person becomes religious and their spouse is not so religious, right? You have to be honest that well, I became religious because something must have happened. I got good company. I got some ilm. I learned more. I read more. I studied more. I pondered more. I worshiped more. Something happened. Probably a combination of all these things. And my husband and my wife didn't have access to that. I only became religious because all of these things happen, so how can I expect my husband and wife to become religious just automatically or on their own? So, what you have to do is find a way that can I get my spouse connected to those same things that connected me to Allah. Right? And for example, the Prophet taught in the Sahih Hadith to make dua Allahumma inni as'aluka hubbaka wa hubba ma That Allah, I ask you to increase me in my muhabbat for you. And my Muhammad for those who love you. Now why would the Prophet tell us to ask that Allah make, put love for the, his lovers? There must be something beneficial to have love in your heart for the lovers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your wife may not have that love yet. Your husband may not have that love yet. Maybe that's what changed you. So to try to connect your spouse gently to the same type of things. And actually maybe something different will work for them. It's quite possible that the thing that connected you to Allah might not be able to connect them to put them to a vast range of connectors, to put them into that surat al mustaqim of the siddiqeen and salihin, and hopefully, and to make du'a for them, and to be gentle with them, not to enforce, not to become a dictator of Islam over them, because nobody enforced Islam on you, you came to, to yourself, how are you going to enforce it on them? Then they will rebel, and then there will be separation, right? So to make du'a, to invite them in the softest and the sweetest of words, to use the love they have for you, to win them over. This is the history of our deen. Sayyidina Omar Omar sister, how did she get him to convert? She invoked the sisterly bond. She said, Oh Omar, me and you have drunk milk from the same mother. In other words, the love that you have for me as a sister, on the basis of that, I invite you to Islam. That's what got her, got him. anhu. So we should realize that if Allah Ta'ala has placed love in people for us, because they are our fathers or our mothers or our daughters or our sons or our husbands or our wives, we should use that love and the familial bond to invite them gently towards the deen. When we stand up for prayer, it is very difficult to imagine ourselves in the presence of Allah while maintaining adab. What exactly are we supposed to think of? Obviously, itself, You are this itself is the adab. This is the adab to realize that this is an absolutely amazing thing for me to think that I'm standing before Allah and Allah is gazing at me. There is no proper, there is no sufficient decorum Right. Imam Al-Ghazain in one of his other books of the Salafi Biyan and Ma'rifat Allah said to truly know Allah, to have Allah's Ma'rifat is to know that he is unknowable. So this is actually Adab, to know that there is no Adab that you can do. This is the Prophet said, ma'abadna أَبَدْنَا حَقَّ That Allah have not worshipped you as the haq of your ibadah. So our Adab is to stand there and know that whatever we do, we lack Adab. Right? To you know that I cannot have as much awe of you as I as I should. I cannot revere you as you should be revered. Right? But I come to you simply in ubudiyat. I adorn myself with the garland, the robe, the is that the honor of being your servant and slave. And I come to you with nothing else. So drown yourself in your ubudiyat. Don't drown yourself in his shan. His shan, his majesty is meant for you to enter your ubudiyat. So the more and more we lower ourselves, so من تواضع لله Allah, The Prophet, the person who lowers himself, Allah Ta'ala will raise them. So you're not supposed to think, when you say what exactly you're supposed to think, if you're not supposed to think of Allah Subhanahu in any way of having any type of surat or Jism, You're not supposed to imagine Allah Subhanahu in that sense. He is beyond our imagination. You just think about His majesty, His greatness, and your servitude and that's it. Is there any replacement for du'a kanut and with if a person doesn't know it yet? If you don't know it yet, then number one you should make a firm intention in your heart to learn it. You should make a firm effort to learn it until and unless and that would only last a few days. You can recite Kulawallah Had three times if you know that, or even some other du'a even if you don't know that. Right? When people go to graves and ask a dead person or make dua to the dead person, however pious that dead person may be, isn't this shirk? Yes, to make dua to the person in the grave is shirk. You can only make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To make dua to Allah subhanahu by invoking the love that you have for a person or the love they had for you is permissible. To make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala invoking the ilm that a person had, that is permissible, right? A great big delegation of Saudi ulama recently visited Uzbekistan and they all went to the grave. They made it a point to visit the grave of Imam Bukhari, ta'ala, and they made du'a. But they made du'a to Allah. You cannot make du'a to Imam Bukhari in his grave. But you make du'a to Allah, ta'ala, but you can invoke this person. For example, Ya Allah, the same love for hadith that you put Imam Bukhari's heart, put that in my heart. Ya Allah, the same love for the sunnah that you put Imam Bukhari's heart, put it in my heart. Right? Ya Allah, the same that you put in him, put it in my heart, right? But you don't necessarily need to be at a person the grave to make that. You can make that du'a in your own home. What happens emotionally, and you will notice that, and it is the Prophet has said, number one, it is sunnah for men to visit the graves. It is sunnah when you go there to make particular du'as. You will also feel emotionally when you visit a grave, you feel more remembrance of death, and you feel you enter a certain emotional state, right? Uh... And so if you can use that emotional state for du'a, that is a good thing. That is a good thing. But you cannot make du'a to the person in the grave. Du'a can only be made to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How is it to feel some association and affection? The word the person uses here is saint. Saint is a Christian concept. There is no concept of saints in Islam. There is a word in the Quran, cream, awliya. The singular of that is wali. Allah says in the Quran, Allah inna awliya'ahu illa uh, in al-muttakoon That who are the awliya of Allah except the people of taqwa So we don't like to use this word saint in English You will say, rather you stick to the Arabic, who are the awliya Or in English equivalent be who are going to be those close friends to Allah SWT The beloveds of Allah, right? To have association and affection with them in this life is not only permissible It is commanded by Allah in the Quran when he says, كُنُوا ma sadiqeen. It is not commanded for a particular class of people. There might be people who call them some saints. So the real question is, who are the sadiqeen? right? If you take my definition that sadiqeen equals awliya equals muttaqoon, which is a definition within the Qur'an, then Allah Ta'ala has commanded us to keep their company. right? Uh, not to ask prayer to them. Yes, you should not pray to them. But feel for them. I already mentioned this to you. that Allah, The Prophet ﷺ taught us in a dua. That we should ask Allah that He make us love His lovers. So certainly his awliya are not just his lovers, but they are his beloveds. So you should have a love for them. And you should learn from them. And you should benefit from them. Right? Uh, and then the notion, how is it to feel affection for those who have passed away? Certainly we love all the awliya who passed away. Imam Shafi, Imam Bukhari, Sheikh Abdul qadir These are all the awliya of Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have love for them. And the way you want to show that love is to be true to their legacy. Be true to their mission that they sacrificed their whole life to bring the deen of Islam into the hearts of people. So if you're really a lover of any of them, you will be true to your love and you will try to bring the deen of Islam into your heart. We're not even taking hands. We have so many. It might be some of the men, but what about those people in the world who have been advised about so proper... Yeah, this question. Those people who have never reached the message of Islam, then the theologians say that they will be judged on the basic message of Tawheed. Then the question asks, those people who have received an incorrect message of Islam. Uh, if you've received... Allah really what that means. One notion is that a human being is responsible themselves to try to seek for the truth, Right? There might be a person who received an incorrect message of Islam. The question is, was it possible for them to get the correct message? If it was possible for them and they chose not to do so, then they are liable for that. Ignorance is not necessarily an excuse in Islam. But Allah knows best, right? Rather than whatever happens to such people... The only way it affects me and you is that we know the only teaching relevance this has for us is that we have to, number one, become better representatives of Islam so people don't get an incorrect perception of Islam. And number two, try to increase our efforts as individuals, as an ummah, as da'wah. That's it. We're not responsible or tasked in Islam in any way to identify a hard and fast theological position as to what exactly is the correct, who has gotten what level of message of Islam and who is responsible at what level and to try to assign people slots in Jannat and Jannah is not our place. It's better actually for you just to assume that none of them got the correct message and all of them need our Dawah. That is the safest course, that is the best course and that is a course that would have relevance to us. Yes. You should buy a plane ticket to Brazil and go spread Islam to them. Uh, if they contact with the human they never yes, sure. So, any one of them who had died before you get a chance to meet them, right, uh, any one of their parents or forefathers who passed away, then they will be judged by Allah. Some, you see, the Quran makes this clear that every human being, including those Brazilians, Amazon, Kalahari, Aborigines, all of them, every human being, soul, was gathered in front of Allah subhanahu ta'ala. He's mentioned this incident in the Qur'an al that he gathered all of the human arwah and asked them a question, Allah to bin, rabbikum, am I not your Rabb? So their ruh has the ability to recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as their Rabb. So the seed of Tawheed is planted in everybody's heart. Still, that's Taala's domain to what extent he will choose to call anybody to account for that Tawheed. Right? Many scholars have taken this position that they will be judged at least to whether they came to a belief in one Allah. Right. Either way, news reports such as that again, the effect the effect that should have on you is not philosophical theology. We're not ta- that's not our job on earth. You can either buy the plane ticket, you can fund the plane ticket, right? You can send them some material, that's what you can do. Right? But at a more serious tone it's important to know that our deen does not tell us to do this. Our deen does not tell us. That's not our job. That's Allah Ta'ala. He is the Malik of the Yom deen. Don't try to be Malik of the Yom deen now. Right? We sometimes say jokingly, it's Allah's mercy that insano ke hatme button ne diya. Insano ke button diya tha, to batan ne kaun kya button press <laughs> karta. Right? We are so love to accuse one another, slander one another, falah is doing bidad, falah is shirk, falah is kafir, falah is this, falah that. Right? Alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala will have the button on the Day of Judgment. As long as you do amal on the Deen sincerely, it's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Yes? Uh is the mask for girls different than the guys? And secondly it is is that is that different in post news? And why are the post schools being why do they differ? Sabi, can you give me that book? You have the book? Why are the four schools created? That's coming next Saturday. That's coming next Saturday. The Salah for a woman is different than a Salah for a man. A very famous Hanbali scholar, Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali, Rahimahullah, has mentioned the differences of the prayer of a woman. What has happened is that the Prophet shallallahu alaihi has not clearly mentioned in Hadith these differences. So this was the example I was giving you from the Sahaba. We have sayings from Sahaba and Tabi and I will read a few out to you. In which they have said that the prayer of a woman should be different. We have sayings from jurists from all four of the schools of Sunni legal methodology. I've given you a Hanbali quote. There are also Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi. These are the other schools. Jurists who have said that, right? There is a position taken by some other people that we will only follow what is in Bukhari and Muslim, or we will only follow those hadith that are in Bukhari and Muslim or at the shart of Bukhari and Muslim. And there is no there is no proof for that position. There's nowhere in the Quran or no hadith either. But that's their ijtihad actually. Right? And it's a very catchy ijtihad, right? I mean for example, one would be presented to you, well, if there's sahih hadith, then why do you need to go to anything else, right? You also have to understand that the, the statements of Sahab and tabin have also reached us through sanad, the same chains of transmission that are So if we know with the same level of sihat there is no evidence in the hadith that a woman should pray like a man. But you have a lack of evidence in the hadith that a woman should pray differently. But you have evidence in the statements of sahaba and tabiin that a woman should pray differently. Now, the difference is between these two position- methodologies is that the classical sunni methodology, which is again 90% of the ulama in the past 1400 years, is of the position that we accept the sahaba as a source of deen. If we know through a sahih statement that the sahaba said something, right?, and it doesn't go against anything in the Hadith, then we take our deen from the Sahaba, and we take our deen from the Tabi. And these are the true followers of the Salaf Salihin. And there, is not, and there is a lack of evidence to the contrary. You will not find a single statement from any Sahaba, Tabi, or Tabai Tabi who says that a woman should pray like a man. This concept came much, much later, many centuries later. But everybody has a choice, right? So you can follow a person in 800 Hijri, you can follow a Sahaba, you can follow a Tabi, that is your own free will. Right, I will not do the intellectual dishonesty and tell you only one thing as far as and I would ask you to stay away completely from such people who do the intellectual dishonesty and try to tell you that the position of one 9th century Hijri scholar alone and certainly he has many students and followers since then but the original position was developed by him that that alone as far as in any other way of praying is against the Deen. So let me, I will read out to you some such sayings so this should become clear and this is a good example of uh, you know a good example of how robust Islamic scholarship is so you can consider this a prelude to next Saturday's session first of all there there are some hadith that mention something so the first hadith is from Abu Dawud which is a very well respected condition Yazid ibn Habib reports that the Prophet passed by two women who were praying Salah he said to them, when you prostrate, let when you do sajda, let part of your body cling to the earth, for women are unlike men in this regard. One hadith from Abu Dawud. Second, there's a hadith, but this hadith is zayf. I will say up front myself, that the second hadith that I'm going to mention to you is zaif. What exactly zayf hadith is, I'm going to explain that to you next Saturday. No, 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 it's not weak. I'll explain to you what it is next Saturday, what zayf is, all right? Abdullah ibn Umar who narrates that the Prophet said that when a woman sits in Salah she should place what's going to happen is this Hadith is going to be corroborated by Sahih statements from the Sahaba. So a Hadith in itself being weak does not mean the content of that Hadith is not valid. It means that that is one source of information for that content but there is some weakness in the chain of transmission. If we find corroboration then what we're going to do is we're going to say that that content of the Hadith is sound. Because the weakness of Hadith can come due to such a small thing. And a weak narrator does not always affect his narration. Like a weak student, a C average student can also get an A. So when we find that there's a weak narrator of a Hadith, but the content of that Hadith has been corroborated by other factors, then we will say that that person was not weak. I will explain this to you. Those who have taken my classes at Lums know this clearly. I will explain this to the non-Lums people next Saturday. Anyway, to continue with the Hadith, and it's not fabricated, you have to understand that there's something else called mawdu Hadith. The Muhaddisiin chose to include this Hadith in their books of Hadith because they viewed it as a source of knowledge. Yes, a source of knowledge that one of the transmitters had some weakness in him. But nonetheless, due to its corroboration elsewhere, so again, we follow the Muhaddisiin. We take our hadith from the Muhaddisiin and the Muhaddisiin have chosen to include this as their book, as part of the textual corpus of the basis of our deen. We accept their verdict. Unless you can come to their level of scholarship and refute them on that ilmi level, which you're not going to be able to do that, right? All right. The Prophet ﷺ said, "When a woman and the muhaddithin still say the Rasulullah ﷺ,' they still view it as a statement of the Prophet ﷺ. All it means by saying Zayf is one of the narrators of the statement had a particular weakness in him, right? When a woman sits in salah." This is uh, included in the very famous Shafi Faki. Shafi Faki Imam Bi has written a book, as Al-Kubra, where he's compiled a selection of hadith that pertain to fiqh, pertain to legal rulings. When a woman sits in Salah, she should place one thigh over the other. When she does that, she should press her stomachs to her thigh in a manner that is most concealing for her. Indeed, Allah looks at her saying, O my angels, I make you witness that I have forgiven her. All right. Then uh, there is a particular word in the Arabic language uh, called Tarabbu. Tarabbu means to draw out one's right leg towards the right side of the body and to place the left leg beneath the right leg. Kind of how I'm sitting on this chair. Kind of how I'm sitting on this chair. All right? Take it, this is how women are supposed to sit. Uh, Now, there are two famous books called the Musanif of Ibn Abi Shayba and the Musanif of Abdul Razak. These two books are what contain the statements of the Sahaba. Sahih. So I will give you, there's a statement of Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Ibn Umar, Sayyidina Nafi, Sayyidina Ab- uh, Amma Safiyyah and Sayyidina Abdullah Ibn Ibas. Five such sahaba statements through sahih change of transmission in those books about how women should pray differently. Then from the tabi'in, Atta ibn Abi Rabah, Hassan al-Basri, and Katada Ibrahim al-Nakhir. These are the four most senior tabi. And all these sahaba and tabi have been approved by these. These are the most sikah. These are the names you find in Bukhari. Katalda Ibrahim al Nahi, And all of these statements, Hassan al-Basri. All of these famous, these two books. Which are the books that are considered to contain the sahih reports of the sahaba and tabi. Again called Musanif Ibn Shaybah and Musanif Abdur Razak. So there are two pages of that here. Imam Behaki then concludes, right, when in, in, in his section of his hadith book, Sunan al kubra he adds his own statement. Very famous Shafi uh, faqif. Far earlier than the later people. Right? All of the laws of salah in which a woman differs from a man are based on the principle of concealment. This means that the woman is instructed to do all that which is more concealing for her. The following chapters of hadith explain this meaning in detail. This is his introduction. Then he mentions, he quotes all these hadith. Right? So those hadith, some of which are sound, some of which are weak, then the sayings of the Sahaba and Tamir. Next saying of the jurors, Ibn al-Qudama al magdisi al-Hanmali. Quote Imam Ahmad bin Hanmal in the most famous book of Hanbali al-Mughni uh, that I consider Sadl. Sadl is also a, a particular position of a woman uh, to for a woman to be better. When a woman prays Salah, she should do Ihtifaz and do Sadl. Ihtifaz, turabbu, Sadl, these are all the different ways that a woman sits in her prayer. Alright? Uh, Imam Ahmad, there's a book narrated by uh, by Imam Ahmad from his son called the Masail of Imam Ahmad. This was written by his son which contains the legal rulings of his father. Imam Ahmad was asked about how a woman should do such and said for tashahud. He said she should do whatever is more concealing for her. He added she should do Tarabbu and tashahud and draw her legs to one side. There are many other things here. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on one person's question, right? But this is something I will explain to you even more next Saturday, right? So it is... I still will not close the door, a person can choose to leave the sahaba, leave the tabi'in, leave the fuqaha. I cannot say that as farce, I can just tell you that it has been the al amal of this ummah that we accept the sahaba, tabi'in, mufassirin, muhaddisin and fuqaha as a source for ardeen. If somebody says I will only do it if I see hadith in Bukhari and Muslim, that's their choice, right? But that's not a choice that the muhaddisin themselves made, Imam Behaqi, one of the biggest hadith scholars. Muhaddissin themselves didn't say this, Imam Muslim himself has said, I'll bring that and I'll show that to you also next Saturday, Imam Muslim himself said that I've not tried in any way to collect all the Sahih Hadith in my collection. I just wanted to have one collection that is concise that only had Sahih Hadith. Do not think that my book is the be all and end all of Hadith. But again because there's lots of confusion in Pakistan and people take advantage of people's confusion. And they toss out to them this rope of seeming singularity and unity where yet, it's just yet another division. At the very least, we would say what's extremely wrong is to go to someone and tell them that the way they're praying is wrong. And this is what happens, unfortunately, quite a bit amongst women. There are some women who will come up to you and say the way you're praying is wrong. And they will say the way you're praying is against the sunnah. So actually what they should say is, Abdul Razak, Ibn Abi Shaybah compiled books that are against the sunnah. Hassan al-Basri, Ibrahim al-Nakhi, Qatada and these were against the sunnah. Sayyidina Ali ibn Umar ibn Huma and the other Sahaba's names I took, they were against the Sunnah. Imam Behaki, he's a muhaddith, he was against the Sunnah. Imam Ahmed bin Hanbala, muhaddith sin he was against the Sunnah. Ibn Qudama Magdisi, he was against the Sunnah. And then I will add one statement to you from myself. Anybody who knowingly goes against the Sunnah is a kafir. Take that fatah from me, Mufti Kumal al Dinamat. So that means all these people were kuffar. It's just not possible. There's no way. It's impossible. To take a position, that did not want to say this to you, but to take a position whose logical consequences is this, is unfortunately one of the biggest fitness we're facing uh, in the ummah right now. And something new wasn't there before. It wasn't there before. The ummah lived in harmony. These four legal madhaib lived in mutual love and respect. There were some extremists in them. There's always, in any academic activity, you find it in academics, and I'll show you examples in economics and political science. Oh, political science, prophets of Mighty Chicago hated each other. There's always extremism in academics. There's always envy, Hassan amongst academics. It's unfortunate, right? Oh, you should read the life of Imam Bukhari, you will learn something. What happened to him and how he passed away. Read the life of Abu Nifa, read the life of Ahmed hanbal These people had incredible uh, Hasidin who were against them. It's unfortunate. It's humans. They were humans, right? And due to that humanity, uh, there have been... People who have cut, taken extreme positions but overall the majumu'ah position has always been a feeling of mutual love and respect that all those are valid because they're all derived according to valid means and from valid sources. And there's stories of tabi'in meeting one another. That, oh, why do you do this? He says, Fala, sahaba in Kufa told me. Said, oh, Okay fine, sahaba told you no problem. A sahaba Medina told me this, okay no problem. That's how the tabi'in lived. <laughs> That as long as you did something, same thing for So you're good too, right? As long as you are a part of that chain, as long as you connect yourself back. So this much we can say that through these statements, a woman who is praying that separate prayer that women pray, that the Hanbali, Shafis, Hanbali, Hanafis say, I have not found a Maliki reference yet for that, but that the Hanbalis, Hanafis and Shafis pray, tell that women should pray differently, at least they know that I've given them a continuous and unbroken chain of transmission back to the Sahaba. And we feel that the Sahaba are the inheritors of the Sunnah. So if you're doing an Amal based on the Sahaba's Amal, it means you're doing Sunnah. Because the Sahaba didn't do Amal against the Sunnah, I cannot accept that. I cannot accept any ideology that Necessarily demands that, without them ever saying it explicitly, but that is the necessary consequence of their ideology. If you take another position where you can, that position will connect you, not to women in every generation, but to some women alive today, then you'll have to pick up the chalk, drop the line again on one particular person who lived again in 8900 Hijri, and then jump the line, and you cannot drop it. There's no evidence that the Paltzham said, said a woman should pray the same. So there's lack of evidence. You can hover there. Maybe you, but maybe a person might think lack of evidence is evidence. But if you take that as an usul, I will bring you to so many positions. I will make haram halal in front of you. If you want to take that usul that lack of evidence is evidence, right? Then, uh, and then that usul will lead you to a lot of may. So because we don't really know, we're not trained in this field, right? We don't know what usul are. But next week I will explain this to you thoroughly. You will understand thoroughly, inshallah. Ta'ala, at least this position. And if nothing else, we want people to hear the other side. Because there's, unfortunately, due to media, due to Saudi petrodollars, this side is being spread massively, right? And if I can't, they have better websites than us, they have better audio than us. What can we do, right? They have more funding than we do, right? So all we want is for people to hear the classical position. At least maybe it'll let you appreciate it. Maybe we can learn to mutually respect one another better. Maybe we can learn to respect the other side. Better. Rather than engage blank in blank condemnation that you're to, you, you're against sunnah, you're against sunnah, you're against sunnah. You pray wrong, you pray wrong. Your prayer is not accepted. Allahu Akbar Kabira. These are big words. If you say them on this day, in this, in this earth, know that you will be made to repeat them on the day of judgment. Right? There will not be anybody there to cover you on the day of judgment. You chose to say them on this word. You chose to go to someone and say that they prayed against the sunnah. Right? Say it if you're willing to repeat those words to Allah on the day of judgment. Then say it in this world. And we have an answer for that. I've given you an answer for that, at least for those who claim that those women who pray in a concealed way, pray the humbly way, and I pray the sunnah way. For Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal had his position as to what is the sunnah way for a woman to pray. Another scholar has a position as to what he thinks the sunnah way is for a woman to pray. Say, I pray according to Ibn Taymiyyah and you pray according to Imam Ahmed bin, bin Hanbal. That's honesty. To drop Ibn Taymiyyah and say, I pray the sunnah way, and to drop the sunnah and say, you pray the humbly way, that's dishonesty, right? And you're free to follow whichever one you want. I have no problem. As far as I'm concerned, you're all going to Jannah. The people who condemn the fuqaha, if they're people of taqwa, they'll also be in Jannah. They'll be happy. They'll be hugging Imam Ali, inshallah ta'ala. Imam Ali from Imam Bukhari, are already hugging. <laughs> you can hug in this life, or you can hug in the next life. The awesome thing is your taqwa. So it's, and that's the other unfortunate thing. That's why normally, for the first two, three years in Pakistan, I never ever spoke on this issue. Because I had respect for the other side due to their taqwa. There are other people who lack taqwa, there are other people. Muhammadiyah and some other people, right, there's, uh, there's some serious issues there. They tell you things that are totally, interest is halal, hijab is not there, they're totally, that's gone, that's different, right? But when the people of taqwa have ilmi differences, the way our people of the past resolved it is either you remain silent, you pick whichever one you want, or you want to jump in the ship, you jump in the ship with mutual respect and honesty, right? What's happening now is people aren't silent and they jump in without the ability, without the respect, without the understanding. They declare others as being people of Sunan Bidah. For example, I'll give you another example. Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, I view myself as the spiritual son of Ibn Taymiyyah. I know Ibn Taymiyyah better than others who may claim him. right? He took this position that I told you today in Du'an Zikr. That there's no such thing as a good Bidah. Right? That even in Du'an Zikr you can't do anything different. Nothing. Right? Who took the Imam Shafi in his Risala has written a whole length on bidatul Hasanah. So, now to say that the Deen of Islam says that there's no bidatul The Deen of Islam doesn't say anything. Ibn Taymiyyah said one thing, Imam Shafi said something else. They're both representatives of the Deen of Islam. They're both Imams on the Haqq. You have to pick your position. Right? Okay. Now, again, without that ilm, you have to have trust. What happens is that this other system breaks your trust. I've seen people who become totally bad <laughs> Literally, I've seen that with I've seen the negative sidetracks of this. They become munkiridis completely. Acha Imam Munifa was <laughs> wrong, Imam Shafi was wrong. All these people were against sunnah. And okay, I understand that you were telling me you follow these. But first of all, that's clear, right? All these people were against the sunnah. So who, I mean, that person is totally badzan. What type of deen is that? I can't stand on the deen. It's, and it's causing very big problems. Because what happens is the Marxists give you a firm platform. The atheists are giving you a firm platform. And those people who are poking holes in the firmaments of, of the history of intellectual history of Islam are presenting a Kacha platform. And then kids, basically, they become badzan of the whole day. Itne sare sunat ke kororo. Right? There's no sunnah. People will come up to you and say all types of things, my friend. they let not just come up to you, they will broadcast TV programs into your home, and they will publish literature, they will distribute cards to you. They will. What can you do? Allah, you have to equip yourself with ilm, if you can't, you have to have itamad with ulama. Look, you're not a doctor, right? But you have taluk with mu'tabar doctors. That's what you have to do. And this is also a line. This is not a false line. This is also a line. I do not think that if somebody follows, there's only one or two things. Actually, I've only been able to come across three things that this group has done that all four of the usul condemn. Other than that, they're actually picking something that's an existing position, right? So that's also a line. I don't think it's invalid. It's fine as long as you're not going against the sharia. It doesn't bother me, right? But to declare others as wrong as false, very bad bad other bad taste, lacks class, lacks honesty. And, I open it up for you, actually has serious ramifications. You know, the Tabin of Medina did not do Rafi'an then. This is absolutely agreed upon. What's disagreed is, will you take Amal of Medina as an Asul or not? Imam Malik says, you shouldn't do Rafi'an then, because that was his Asul, Amal of Medina. I'll also tell you, I mean, my own position is also that you shouldn't take Amal of Medina always as the Asul. But look at the tabin of Medina did not do Rafi' and then. Now if I tell you that the only way to pray according to the sunnah is to do Rafi' and then what did I just say? It's logic. That's why you have to study logic. A implies B, B implies C, A leads to C. That means I'm telling you that the tabin of Medina prayed a salah that was against the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. If the tabin of Medina are capable of that, your deen is finished. You should become an atheist. If this is your deen, that the tabin of Medina can leave a sunnah, It's over for you. What type of deen is that? What type of history is that? What type of ummah is that? Is that an udmah, siddiqin, and salihin on the Slaatul mustaqim? What type of ummah is that? That's not my ummah. My ummah, my deen is the deen of Ibn Taymiyyah, of Shafi, of Malik, of Atab, of Qatal, of Abu Hanifa, of Bukhari, of the Kamdjanani, of Bahaudi, of of Ghazali, of Ibn Qayyum, of all of them. I'm not going to cut any one of them, feet. Never. Not possible. You cut all the pillars and just leave the whole deen standing on Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyum? Not possible. It's not possible. <laughs> what happened before they were born then? What about all those people? You guys are asking, what about the nuns and priests? Oh, what about the Tabin of Medina? They're going to go to Jahannam? They're bidati? What about all those Muslims in the first 600 years of Islam? Huh? All these women who are praying the Hanbali or Hanafi way, they're all bidati? The prayers aren't accepted? The Prophet prays, you saw me pray. How he said that. You don't think Imam Shafi knew that hadith? You don't think Imam Ahmed Mumble knows that hadith when he says these statements? You don't think Imam Bihaqi, who has mentioned that hadith in his same hadith book, then he makes the statement? But no, you quote this as a slogan that prays, you say me pray, and, that, and tell people that they're praying wrong? And I realize that some people are deliberate. I can excuse you people, but the people who are spreading this, no excuse for them anymore in my heart. No way. They should know better. If they don't know better, they shouldn't be speaking. If they know better, they're deliberately misleading. We have been silent too long. Now we speak out. Alright? Take (laughs) care. Next Saturday workshop, you should have love and respect for others. Work on the bottom of your salah. Work on, let's go back to the beginning. Work on the bottom of your salah. Look at the bottom of your salah. Don't look at the zahir of somebody else's salah.